If Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. Yeah, there you go. Sending out good vibes. White reworked the equations and showed that no, you don't have to have a mass energy conversion of anything near that size. It's much more, it's much smaller to be able to achieve those effects and just narrowly within the bounds of human feasibility. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. Uh, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Joseph P. Farrell a little bit later about a little bit of everything. We do get started in, in uh, sorry, Antarctica. Oh, <laughs> see, Freudian slip. Yeah, maybe Antarctica will end up being Grand America one day. Or maybe we'll be banished there. <laughs> well, that's where we'll die. Um, anyhow, we're going to start. That's where we'll thrive. Or something. Anyway, we got him here. We're going to start in Antarctica, and then we're going to end up all over the world. Joseph is always a treat. And, of course, we got the one and only, uh, everybody's favorite co-host, Graham Short and fat oh, is a slur, Dunlop. Is it not? Yeah, I agree. Is it a negative? I don't think the short. Is it a negative? I con- don't think, I couldn't get your back on the shorty? short. Shorty? Somebody calls you shorty? No, I think you might get there one day, but we're not there yet. I don't understand. It's not uh, that you're not going to get enough SJWs, because it's really all about how many social justice warriors you're going to be able to get in your corner. Okay, let's save this for the next episode, because I'm going to... And I don't think shorty is it. Fatty. What about slow? Fatty ugly? is good. What about ugly? No, I mean this. Okay, let's just leave it for next episode. Why? Because I want to show you the rant. Oh uh, yeah. Are you going to bring the rule book? I want to bring a rule book. I want to see what's yeah. going on. We're going to have this conversation <laughs> again. Yeah, man, we should. Yeah. It's I need to learn from it. I don't understand it. Help me. Un- Did you do it? Uh, Did you call someone a fag this time? No, I didn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because I not, couldn't picture you doing I'm not that. not suspended. But I could see you all riled up playing hockey. I got hit in the back of the head really hard with a stick. I was in the middle of the fray. And then what happened? You called him a fag? No, I didn't okay. call him a fag. No, I got, I got fucking a, a silly butt. They, the refs were terrible. They gave me a butt-ending penalty for nothing. I didn't even butt-end the guy. But I, but I got one of my players came to my rescue, kind of like I wasn't, you know, in dire need or anything like that. <laughs> hit the guy from behind, and he was into it, and he got a little excited, and you know, he Damn. called, he called the, you I'm know, he was, you know, called the, the guy's a faggot. <laughs> so the times. guy, the guy came to your defense and is now suspended. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Typical grab. You're a little troublemaker out there. Probably I bet. three games. You're a little <laughs> troublemaker out there. I bet. And then, so what's your defense that he called you short and fat? No, first? I'm just no. I oh. don't. Let's get into it next episode. I want the rules. I want to look over the rules first. Why? Because you don't want to make an ass of yourself. Well, yeah. Because I mean, well, but why? <coughs> I'm with you. So I if think somebody calls me bald fat or ugly, a thing now. Or but here's fat the thing: or Rogan, slow Rogan or gets old, away with old, it. old. I'm one of the oldest guys out there now. The old so, bastard. You fucking old nah, fart. We're not what about yet. that? No. So that. So who's making that decision? 
that that's okay to call somebody old and call somebody short or well, slow once, or fat or bald because those or things ugly. Aren't, hey, stop pointing at me for one. Yeah, that's a real trigger <laughs> for you. Um, those things aren't hate speech. I know, but why not? I'm asking you why. Well, does it not hurt my me. feelings if somebody calls me a short fucker? Do they call you that? Does it hurt your feelings? No, but it could. Okay. It would what about if when, I wasn't in you know, Scott spiritual was condition you a that I did. Did that make you mad? <laughs> <laughs> Who chooses hate speech? I would assume the government of Canada. So we're getting into this now. See, don't you don't have to fucking have the conversation with me because that's uh, what I say with, is it's all a slippery slope. Look, it's with our listeners. Hey, I'm I want a hundred dollar bet with Ryan. I don't even know if Ryan still listens to the show. I hope you do. We love you, Ryan. Um, What'd you do with the money? It just went into the, the dispensary. <laughs> no, it went into oh, the Oh, it's for us. Oh. Yeah. He shot it into the thing. If I could prove that someone had been charged with a free speech violation and that comedian, I showed them the link of the comedian paying oh, the fine. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I didn't even think I had won the bet. Actually. I sent him the thing saying, well, here's this. I don't think this is good enough, but it's close. And this is where I think is where we're headed. And he donated a hundred dollars. And he Thanks. donated a hundred dollars. Thanks anyway. Ryan. Yeah, Thanks Ryan. Um, I think he was in the chats for quite a while. Yeah. He left. People get sick of the chats too. I don't blame yeah. him. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of people in there still and it's fun. Um, now you've lost. Your I've thought. lost my train of thought. Ryan, you want a hundred dollars because of, of the oh, bat. because of the thing. Yeah, Canada because we don't have free speech, and I think that all a bunch of stuff is going to start to be an expansion on 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 uh, that hate on speech that, on hate speech. Yeah. Build on hate speech. Like I think you're already seeing that in certain forms. You're seeing it start to creep in the assault on the language where oh, this is going to be hate speech and you're not going to be able to say that. And uh, pretty soon it's going to get to the point that you can't criticize a politician or you can't, you know, so guy, that's what it is. It get, it, right. it, eventually you get from A to B to C to D and it happens in these little steps that no one notices. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're at the point where, well, I struggle with it because I think it's hate speech is bad and it's, it's almost a I curse. Mean, you shouldn't be calling it's people fags out there either. No, I know, but you're in the middle of a fray. It's a brouhaha. There's people throwing fists and stuff. And those days are over, Graham. You guys are just, you guys are old bigots. I'm not, though the guy who got the penalty is young. It's not, oh, I'm the older guy. But what if, Darren, what I don't understand. So a guy at work kind of agrees with that, the rule. And I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get him to explain why is it okay? And he says, because you are short. So I'm like, well, maybe that, so, so because the guy's not a fag and I'm not, oh, is, is yeah. that, but is that what, is that oh, why? Is it because I'm, I'm technically short? So it's okay to call me a bat, like to use Bang. short as, come on, come on. Like, let's have a serious discussion. Here. Oh yeah. You're just digging a hole, buddy. You're digging a no, hole. I'm trying to understand it. You can't be calling people fags out there. But but fat he is okay or called... short or 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 uh, ugly? No, that's not okay. In my opinion. So who draws no, the line? Who draws the line? What what? That's not hate speech. Why not? That's I don't what know. I don't understand. But I can't hear I, I I won't sit here and have the argument for that to be hate what? speech. I'm not. Okay. I'm just saying why okay. is something why is sexual orientation hate speech? Or the race. Government decided or race, yeah, but too. not stature or good looks or like bad looks or like what if you know if i'm ugly why'd you start with good looks <laughs> i meant looks i meant looks <laughs> oh. 
Uh, well, that's like, coming. So that's I what think I'm that's saying. Coming. So, like, where, that's coming. But who? But who decided that it wasn't already there? The government. Are you sure it was the government? But yeah. is it? We could get a list. No, I, I mean, is it? But, the government will have a list. Really? Hate speech laws in Canada. Da, 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 da. So it all set on precedent, really, and best basically, you're going to have a precedent, or it's going to go to the courts, and they're going to say, "Well, the it is or it isn't." And now that's going to be the rule. I, I want to be clear. I I I think there's an intention behind it, which is not good, and it's almost like a curse. Like I do believe that our words affect things, our thoughts affect things, right? We're about yep. to have Lynn McTaggart on talking about the power of eight. It's an amazing book, amazing research. And so you're out there calling people slurs. No, I didn't call anybody <laughs> anything. But I, 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 I almost could. If I was in the middle of a fucking fight, That's you know how easy that, you know how easy your fucking fag slips out? I mean, holy shit. Well, you when know, we grew up, that was just, you know. Well, that's problem. That was, that was nothing, right? I mean. That's the problem. People, is your, whole, <laughs> your whole generation is going to have a real problem adjusting to the new world. Mine too. We were no better when we were kids. You were saying goof well, the other you know day. What? Goof is worse whoa, now, right? Whoa, we're not calling anyone goofs. We're really? not calling anyone goofs. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> here's the thing. I grew up in the fucking sticks. So you probably couldn't get away with it. So my, my childhood is like the same as your childhood, probably. Because well, I'm, no, I'm I mean, so far removed that yeah, we were 10 years behind. <laughs> yeah, that's it's closer. So it's it's probably closer, closer than our it's age. closer than yeah. it seems yeah. because we were in the sticks and yeah. that shit still flew. I was kind of in the sticks too. So but that was, was the last of it, you know? That was it. That was the last of... Uh, like yeah. those kids in school today, guaranteed, you can't even come fucking within 10 feet of those words. Or you're fucked. On the school ground these days, I'm sure that's dealt with yeah. fucking swiftly and harshly. Yeah. Which, I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I just don't know if I agree with dealing with it in a, in the, in a, in a right way, but I don't know. Well, I don't know what that is. I mean, no. I, I just, it, I don't yeah. think it's law. I don't think it's to make laws around it because who gets to decide and who, and where does that line get drawn? I that's think there why. should be less laws. So when you call them out, there if just should be off, more you can love. over and punch you right in the face and if not you, get charged. If you oh, positively reinforce love, then there'll be more love. So instead of focusing on the hate, focus on the love. There you go. Right? That's probably the answer. That would ultimately. be the answer. Here's the thing. It's from the book I'm reading. It's not fair. It's never going to be fair. All you can do is do your best to make the world a better place. The book you're reading? That's you're it. You're reading the book? I'm always reading the book. For the show? <laughs> <laughs> I know this is the first book I read in a long time. This is for your, your relationship? <laughs> no, just for me. This one's no, just for good. me. Really? Well, why don't you have the author on? I mean, that's the beauty I've about doing this show. Like, I've been trying. He's not. Yeah, I know. A lot of my favorite authors are too. <laughs> it's like, fuck you guys. I tried to get the guy on uh, the hot guy. The hot guy? John, Jonathan 12 Hawks. The hot guy? Remember, I've been bugging you to oh, get a hold of him. Guy. I got a spam email from him out of nowhere. And then I replied. I'm like, come on our show. Blah, blah. It's like, not a good time. Oh, he replied like, to yeah, you? Yeah, he replied back to my reply. And he said spam. no. <laughs> so you, know, you probably were like, I got a synchro. I can't wait. I can't wait. And then fucking, I ain't coming on your fucking show, man. No, he's got to travel for oh, a bit. I, I can told just him, picture your little heart sinking. I told him I'd, I'd bug him again in a couple That's months, a few months. I bet you were just trying. That was almost like the fortune cookie thing, except you were the only one there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I'm getting the sweaty. What do we got here? Uh, hmm. Bingo, bingo, social media jingle. Don't forget to rate, comment, and go subscribe to the Grind America newsletter. So I'm going to go to the YouTubes here, and then I'm actually going to go to the Twitters a little bit this time too because there was yeah stay off the, the troll the YouTube's we've got a pretty good there. audience out there now so that like someone asked about we're starting to get some people coming over from the higher side chats oh thanks nice. Greg so they're asking like what episodes to listen to and then I can just retweet it and then our audience will just say their oh. favorite episodes oh that's a great idea so I'm gonna I'll spring start with some YouTube's as usual because everyone loves the YouTube's I'm starting to think people go specifically over to the YouTube's at the shot at getting into this segment. That's not a bad shot. I doubt it. it. It's probably easier just to mail, email Graham. I go Graham and you'll get in the segment. Bless up, you goofs. <laughs> I was. Uh, Why do you read those trolley comments? That was Felix. Oh. Felix the troll. Did I already read the one that was riveting episode and goddamn Garen? You always come at Grom with hilarious ball breakers. Yeah, you read it. Uh, first American to hit play. Okay, now I'm going over to Spotify to listen. <laughs> okay, now I'm back because it's not up there yet. <laughs> Bless up, sheepdogs. Album art is great, as usual. All right, a double dose of Grimerica. One on THC and one here. Good job over there at Greg's, D-Ron. Vaccine safety is big on my list, even if you don't have kids. There is also a tremendous spike in Alzheimer's. I haven't done the research yet, but I'm working on it. Support the show. Nice. Well, maybe he should come on when he's done his research. Thanks, Original Larry. I told him I'd be interested oh, that's original in Larry, finding yeah. out where his research took him. Uh, what do we got here? I've been seeing these videos here on YouTube where people show pictures of clouds with alleged UFOs circled. I've yet to see anything in those pics, so this guest believes UFOs are making the clouds. It's an interesting thought, but I've yet to see any UFOs. Hell, from what I see here in Tennessee, most clouds are clearly remnants of geoengineering. <laughs> Listening to the show now, I suspect it will be a will be great as per usual. Thanks for posting, and thanks for your work. Cheers. And then he found the video. <laughs> oh, no, he did. Oh, he, yeah. Funny, I had yeah, a feeling he, did, he would talk about He did find the video. Engineering. At 1628, 2,500 planets have Luciferian conditions. What source is this gentleman using? <laughs> and where is he getting his info? I'm not writing him off. I'm just curious. <laughs> I think we talked about his source, and it's pretty went, much divine. Oh yeah, it's said, a divine source. He said, okay, I went back to the beginning and heard him say all his information comes from Revelation, and he's the wordsmith. Got it. Not from the Revelation, as in the... the his the own writing. Writing. No, yeah, it's yeah, his yeah, own yeah, Revelation. Yeah, yeah. It's his own Bible. Divine Revelation. That's his divinity. Yeah. Um, on number 269, the stigmatization of sex. Like, let like the father-son talk I never had. 
<laughs> I feel less guilty for the excessive masturbation. And uh, number 248, which is the high-level spiritual warfare. David Bryan, was yeah, it? Yeah, David Bryan, yeah. I heard y'all on THC yesterday and remembering you mentioning this episode, so I decided to check it out. I'm glad I did. This was cool, and I'll definitely be listening tomorrow. Nice. I'll jump over to Twitter. Ah, this is one of my personal favorite episodes. Alan Green's The Guest. Who's that, you might ask? Listen to find out. Yeah. That was number 209 for anyone who's wondering. Uh, Here we got from Brandon Littrell. Big truck synchro report. Driving this guy, listening to number 269, and Darren talking about parking in the back of the lot with his big truck. I think the universe is telling me to get a bigger lift. Maybe a new bumper. Also, I think I might have captured some radionic ships. There's a little picture. Nice. Oh, nice pick. Big truck synchro gets a 5.2. Um... Great episode, guys. Thanks. How's the economy up in the north? It's better than the U.S., right? More fair? No and no. What? 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 No and no? Yeah. No and no? No and no to both questions. Yeah. Uh, the problem is all the retweets and favorites squeeze in there, so it's hard to really fucking... Well, maybe you should just gather all this up before we start recording and yeah. have it in a nice summary format. Or like you do? With your clips. I do. It does, it does take me a while to prepare for the intro, yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Great show, guys. Keep up the good work. And thanks against. That's my beach day in Dubai sorted. All right. I think we've had enough. Or are, you still, are you going through the Twitter still? Or are you off of the troll, the troll land YouTubes and you're on the Twitters yeah, now? Yeah, you go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> okay, I got, a, I got some really good... Listener uh, synchronicities and stuff. Actually, that's not true. I'm not ready yet. I got to do one more thing. Okay. But I can't find the jingle. I don't think it's in here yet. Okay, you go ahead. Let's do your thing. I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web. And Aaron is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. This is from, uh, I'm not sure. Okay, Matthew. Hello, Darren and Graham. And this is It's the Journey, Love the Show. Small studio dick. A few comments carefully sandwiched for your enjoyment. First, your show makes for a great listen. Sending out a balanced and warm tone surfing between hilarity and matters worth serious consideration. Cover art is spot on. Thanks, Nap. And especially for the most recent episode 269, certain to perplex any potential censor. By the way, that must be an intentional episode number given the subject. Ha! Almost. And man, Dr. Miller. It was very, very roughly manipulated. Though. It was like we had a choice between two episodes. And I think <laughs> if it, that, I think if, it came I down think to it like, was, it was just randomly ended up yeah, that way. We ended up running out of episodes at that point. So, and man, Dr. Miller nails it. Imagine the power of collective honesty on the matter of sexuality. Two points I humbly submit for additional consideration, however. Graham, since we as individuals have no idea how long we're graced to be on Earth, why speed anywhere, per your intro lament about speed limits? 
How about the joy in the journey, an opening to self of self to possibilities along the way, whether exoteric or esoteric? And Darren, I've heard road salt can be a problem on the, for the roadside soils and groundwater. Living in Minnesota, I get the immediate traction benefit, but would hate to have the ecosystem lose its grip. Fuck the ecosystem. Honestly, I don't know enough about this matter, but I've heard recent studies raise fairly serious concerns. But really, I genuinely and humbly submit these comments because I really appreciate the work you put into your podcast, including the music, too. Take care. So, yeah, the speeding. I mean... I, it's not that I'm rushing. I just would rather be driving fast. I mean, honestly, Darren, it's, it's, I, I don't agree that the speed limits are appropriate for the people that are driving anyways. I mean, why, you know, there's you're rushing. No, it's just, uh, I, it's not comfortable going 90 or a hundred when you could be going 130 more comfortably. Like that's just more, it seems more smooth and comforting. It's not about, uh, so I do, I do enjoy the journey. I just like the speed. But it's not. You just like the journey to be faster. Yeah. No, just a little more exciting. So, anyways, there you go. Thanks for the email. Fuck yeah. There was no synchro there, though. I played a synchro jingle. I know. Sorry. I just, yeah, I got another one here, too. This is a really good one. So, this is, um, I don't think he has a name, so I won't say it. This is uh, desynced. <clears throat> Not sure, hey, not sure who else I could tell this to, but I have to get this synchro off my chest. It just happened about 15 minutes ago. Insight, backstory. I hate my job. It's menial labor that I've 98% automated in my head, so I have nothing to think about, which means the bad thoughts percolate to the top, and, well, it's miserable. Company policy is no headphones, so I can't distract Ouch. myself with entertainment or education. No music, podcasts, audio books, lectures. Darren's talking about our day job. Yes, yes. I've already said too much. I know. I need to find more fulfilling ways to earn money, but it's a journey, not a fork in the road. That's funny. Another journey. Another journey email. I need a way to live the day-to-day of that journey. Also, my dad works for at that company. The lead-up. So I'm sitting at home, staring at a wall, Pandora in my headphones, thinking about how much shit needs to change. I start having this scene play out in my head. A grandiose way to change the headphone policy at work. An all-hands meeting where, during the Q&A portion, I confront the owner about the policy. Reference the backstory, how life is a waking nightmare, how I can't suffer another day of the mundane mashed potato brain bullshit, etc. The owner refuses to relent. I throw up my middle finger and say, thanks for the opportunity. He's got a date with a bullet in the brain and I leave the meeting. So I'm clearing out. My dad chases me down to stop me and I'm like, don't worry, I'm actually not going to kill myself. Just quitting. But take a week off for bereavement. I'll print up a death certificate if they want one. Remember, this is just a fantasy in my mind. Back to real life. I'm thinking, huh, how forgeable is a death certificate? <laughs> I could just picture how I could just picture how your mind starts hmm. So how forgeable is a death certificate? Start thinking death about faking your death to get out from under your debts. <laughs> Beck's song, I think I'm in love, is playing in the background. 
Open a private window, get on DuckDuckGo, and search local death certificates to see if I can play around in Photoshop. About three to five seconds later, the lyrics, what does it mean to fake your death? (laughs) Play. I got to say, I haven't laughed that hard in a long time. In the middle of the song, it's in the middle of the song. The song started well before I started the search, well after the scene played out. I didn't say anything aloud, so no device surveillance, and I've never heard that song before. Here's a link to the song lyrics, and he just sends me a link to the song lyrics. That's a good one. Sorry, that was kind of long So for so little payoff. It just came out of nowhere. Not a lot of songs with lyrics about faking death, and that song isn't even really about faking death. So to have that play just after I searched with intent to forge a state document just so I could troll my boss into changing company policy, well, that was quite surreal to say the least. Anyway, I hope that was somewhat coherent and I got the message across. Stay awesome and thanks for everything. So, uh, what, Did he change his headphone policy? No, it didn't. I don't think so. It was just a daydream, right? So, But why not? Couldn't you do this for a headphone policy? Because I know music is an issue, but I can listen to spoken word, as in podcasts or audiobooks, and still hear what's going on and still talk to people. So can you not just say like... Ask for like no music, but spoken word with one earbud in or something like that. Like, I wonder why is it a safety thing? Cause uh, uh, there's gotta be a fucking middle ground there, you know, like even just driving. to say, look, would how much would the motivated, if people were mo- motivated, would productivity really increase? Like, couldn't you do it for, do it for like a month and measure the productivity? I think the studies are there for that already. Yeah. It's gotta be. I mean, people, you know. They need something, especially if it's if it's mundane work like that. I mean, yeah, I think the studies already say that uh, you know you get more out of people. People are more productive if they're listening to something. Why can't they develop an earphone that doesn't go in your ear that it just vibrates on your throat or something so people can't even see it and you just absorb the then fucking you just can't hear the force, absorb the force, vibration. Then everyone your does ear. it and they just don't hear the truck that backs over them. <laughs> I mean, there's a possibility that some people are in places where they shouldn't have headphones as well. Yeah. But I'm not siding with your boss, bro. I'm on your team. Headphones. If not headphones, then you should be able to at least have like, you know. A radio plan or something. Radio plan or something. But who listens to the radio anymore? I mean, you know, you guys should all get to choose which podcast you listen to. Bring your Bluetooth speaker and you each just get the choose a podcast and it goes around that's right exactly you got one more you can play while i fucking keep trying to find this quick i got a ufo quote oh which one should we go with Darren and Graham going deep it's a profound ufo quote of a week Words to ponder and critique. It's a profound UFO quote of the week. I was there at Project Blue Book, and I know the job they had. They were told not to excite the public, not to rock the boat. Whenever a case happened that they could explain, which was quite a few, they made a point of that and let that out to the media. Cases that were very difficult to explain, they would jump handsprings to keep the media away from them. They had a job to do, rightfully or wrongfully, to keep the public from getting excited. 
That was Dr. J. Allen Hynek, former chairman of the Department of Astronomy at Northwestern University and scientific advisor to Project Blue Book from 1952 to 1969. Hey, that was almost a proper quote, too, this time. What do you mean? Not just reading off the webpage. Off the CIA.gov slash UFO reading room website. That's right. I can dig it. I got to dig up some more of those. Those are good. It's good to see people get to get to... You know, share the CIA website of UFOs articles and stuff they've been accumulating on there. Think so? Yeah, when they apparently haven't been, you know, doing anything with it. Bingo, Meanwhile, they've bingo. been filing thousands of documents on UFOs, and it's all there for public viewing. That's right. Speaking of good things to do, another good thing to do is head on over to grimerica.ca/support, guys. Uh, we do have the new improved support page. We've got some new weekly options, some monthly options, some yearly options some Patreon options and some new crypto options as well. So I think we got just about every base covered for people that didn't like PayPal before people that wanted different, uh, didn't want to pay every month or didn't want to pay every week. And they just wanted to pay once a year. That's an option now or we can go weekly. And you know what I like about weekly is weekly is basically, if you go to weekly, whatever number you're choosing there is basically what you're choosing to pay us per show. Except that we put out more than one show per week. Uh, yeah, but we lately, could, we've been we, doing... Like, we could call it one. Yeah. Yeah, 1.5. So, so if you go on the weekly for a buck or two bucks, that's like what you're paying us for that show. So a buck a week, buck a show. Yeah. Five bucks a month, buck a show. There's a bunch of options there, guys, and it really does. It's the only way we keep these things going. Keep uh, being able to handle the little expenses that keep coming up. And, you know, it's always something. Graham's yeah. crackly mic. New chords. New cords, fun stuff. So if you can do that, guys, we really do appreciate it. We're still like not at one percent. We have. What are we shooting for? Three percent, five percent. Right now, we're shooting for one percent, dude. And we would have got to one percent, but then we got some more listeners, so we're close. You know, it's not like we're way off of one percent. We're at like you know, point seven five, point seven five, point eight percent of one percent. That's good. That's good. That's not bad. Yeah, we're closing in on one percent. So it'd be great if you guys could hit one percent. I mean, and then we'll start talking about maybe two or three. Let's worry about one. Let's just go right for three or five, like. Yeah, other yeah. shows are getting five or ten. Well, not ten. ten. Ten's like top, top, top. If you if for certain models, I think yeah. the average is three to five. No, I don't even think that high. I don't think that. I think you're you're not looking at the average. You're looking at for paywalls. I'm talking. No, but you're looking at a couple popular shows. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, well, I, I don't think that it's fair to say average. No, yeah. Well, there's, well, there's probably, probably a doing ton pretty of good for that, yeah. There's probably a ton of shows that have nobody paying for their paywall. Yeah. True that. Anyways, so anyway, do it, guys. We don't do paywalls. We don't do ads. We're just not going to do that shit around here. So we just need you to pick up the other end of that uh, karmic stick, and if you get a little value from the show. And uh, you're feeling like we're adding some value to your life in one way or another, then throw a little value back our way in the forms of dollars and cents. Of course, it doesn't have to be in the form of dollars and cents. If you can send in some synchros or trip reports or yeah, things like that to that. Graham, that's yeah. value for the show. We send in some music or some jingles, that's value for the show. Reviewing the show on iTunes the show is, is value. So that's another, like, Sharing the show all over is yeah. value. Yeah. That's right. The other thing we wanted to add to the list of things you can do to help... Uh, Support the show is if you have another podcast you'd like to hear us on. We had a lot of great feedback from us on THC that people like to hear us in that element. So if you guys are listening to a show and you think that we'd be a good fit there, then uh, yeah, throw ask them. And if they're down, we'll go over there, do a swap cast or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, them. that's a good idea, yeah. 
little way to help spread both shows a little bit. Yeah, we also take uh, guest recommendations from people as well. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to add them all, all in, but um, we try. A yeah. lot of those are the best ones. We yeah, do. they do turn out to be. The, actually, I'm I'm working on a couple right now right. from our buddy Clint. Oh, Clint again. Uh, he's got like the, he's, he's batting a hundred percent. Yeah, he's the master of sleeper guests. That's right. So support the show, motherfuckers, please and thank you. I'm gonna open this anthrax bomb quick, and then we'll get out of here. this down. Yeah, actually, hang on. PO, is this the PO box one? Why don't you send some physical mail to the Grimerica <laughs> Show? Physical. At PO Box one six zero three three. Next line. One hundred dash eight fifteen, comma Seventeenth Avenue S W. Next line. Calgary, Alberta. Next line. Canada. Next line. T two T space five H seven. That's the PO Box. Why don't you send Darren some dirty socks? Cause he's got a dirty sock fetish. Is that why you got dirty songs? Yeah. Because of this jingle? Yeah. The trick is you're supposed to put the weed in the dirty socks. I thought it was a strategy. Oh. Wow, you're always like a little behind on that stuff. Are you eating now? Don't eat. You, know, you got like four minutes left. So the, the sketchy thing is there's no return address. Okay. So that's always bad. No, it's not. Why is it bad? Well, it's either good or bad. Could go either way. How can it be bad? Well, you wouldn't put a return address if you're anthraxing someone. No. We got. Oh, this is a good. Uh, this could be a turn out to be a good uh, package here. We got this here says paper clip on it. No, it's just the bag. Ooh, it's from Amsterdam. Oh, that's your buddy from Amsterdam. Oh, it's like a fridge magnet from Amsterdam. Nice. What else do we got here? Ooh, a couple of cool pens. Nice. Which one do you want? I want this one. You don't get to choose. Sorry, bro. We got uh, what are these? Basically, some souvenirs from Holland. Very yeah, nice. yeah, some little chocolates here. We got uh, ooh, a tongue cleaner. Oh my god, a tongue cleaner! How did they know you have bad breath? Did they hear us talking about it one day? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's called halitosis, motherfucker. <laughs> we have a letter here. Is that hate speech? <laughs> This one says it's just for me. You want to open that while I read this? I always get stuck reading the handwritten things, and then yeah. people think my speech patterns are as bad as yours. Oh, we got a little Budski all, all the way from Amsterdam. Well, yeah. That's a new one. There you go, buddy. That's for you. What do we got here? Amsterdam, the 12th of December, 2017. Howdy, Graham and Darren. How are you guys doing? If you read this letter before Christmas, it means that the Dutch. <laughs> What's today? February 13th. It's almost Valentine's Day. The Dutch nor the Canadian postal services have severely screwed up. You don't need to read the letter out loud during the show. In the envelope you have found, he didn't say, don't read it. Said you don't, don't need, need to. to. Yeah, okay. 
In the envelope, you will have found a few goodies. Please accept them as a token of my gratitude for all the things you do for the Grimericans and all the other listeners. Your show has become my favorite podcast in just a few months, which is no small feat. The green bag is for Darren, of course. It's Super Silver Haze from the coffee shop. Siberia in the center of Amsterdam. I like it. I haven't smoked weed for over a decade now, but I've been told it is one of the best coffee shops in Amsterdam. And this specific type of weed was recommended that the, by the people that work there. The small bent metal object is for Grant. I knew it. So yeah, I passed that to you right away. Yep. I have the same and use it daily to scrape my tongue with. In the morning, right before brushing my teeth. Should you already have one, which is not unthinkable, you could use it as a present for somebody else. Do you have a tongue cleaner? Now I think... I, now Some that, toothbrushes come with them now. It just pops up. Well, it just did you turn it over and it's got a little thing on it. The other, why is it for me though? I don't understand. Like, well, because I got it, this. Is it a biohacking I got thing this or something? Got is it kind of yeah? Cold? I think cleaning your tongue is a biohacking. I should probably try it. Okay, I'll try it. it helps with your bad breath. Okay. Maybe he knows you. Us. So it turns out that's for you <laughs> after your little joke, <laughs> which is pretty funny. <laughs> The other stuff is for both of you. Use the licorice to keep your voices sounding smooth during the show. Yeah, right. Have you heard Graham when he's eating little treats during... In one of the latest shows, Simon Park's name was put forward by a listener who sent you an email as a potential guest for an upcoming show, and I wholeheartedly agree with that person. Please check out some of the lectures on his website, www.simonparks.org and or listen to his bi-monthly radio show on the first and third Sunday on Wolf Spirit Radio. Okay, guys. Had to put that in. Have a grime Merry Christmas, a great ending of 2017, and a superb start of 2018. Take care, and all the best. Right on. Thanks. Sorry yeah, it took so long. I'm picture. sure that was the, the Holland Post and, we've been and not checking, Canada Post. We've been checking them. Postal box. Too, I, so I check it every every few days. Yeah. I'll take just for he sent it all the way. I'll put a little bud here in the bong here and have a. No, are you really? I think Jesus. it's all right. Say something. All right. Well, <laughs> enjoy this chat with with Joseph P. Farrell. It's another great one. Oh, oh, did I? Get? Sorry, I'm sorry. All right, guys, enjoy the chat with the one and only Joseph P. Farrell.
right, we're excited to have uh, Joseph Farrell back. He's got a doctorate in patristics from Oxford, and he's been researching like physics and alternate history and science and you know strange stuff, like his website says. It's the Giza Death Star. That's um, that was his, I think, first book, and the website was based on that. He's got a community and a blog, and some podcasts and all kinds of interesting stuff going on. He, we, we, I mean, geez, we could talk about so many topics like geopolitics lately and all this, but we decided to try and narrow it down to Antarctica a little bit tonight. And then I'm sure we're going to jump into a whole bunch of other things as well. So um, thanks a lot for uh, spending some more time with us here, Joseph. And uh, it's really good to have you back. And we're looking forward to chatting about all this stuff. Well, thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's great. Like I said, we, uh, you know, definitely one of the all time favorites. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's so so uh, fun to chat with you about all this, and and especially with what's going on lately in the world. I mean, I've been listening to your your blog and your podcast and all, and you're really in tune with um, you know all the, everything going on in the world. But we, you know, we really wanted to kind of get your take on Antarctica because it keeps coming up, and there's more and more attention to it. And and you, what were you and, talking you know, about this morning with the Fitbits? Or oh, something? that's what we wanted to ask him about as well. Yeah, recently I saw this this heat heat map of all the fitbits and there's mm-hmm. a bunch of them and the bunch of the just these like <laughs> solitary fitbit things in the middle of antarctica and i thought oh, well people are speculating you know and it's I like, funny because i never went to antarctica i was looking at the ones in yemen and all that and i never even thought of antarctica well i really don't know what's going on there um i've had several people send me those things i've looked at them i saw one which was uh actually a line of heat it was almost you know it almost looked like a highway of some sort with traffic moving on it but i you know some of these things are so isolated and so small and that on the other hand i've been having a bunch of people send me stuff talking about massive amounts of heat under the ice that appears to be melting some of it uh, and i really don't know what to make of it there at a minimum i i would say that that there does appear to be some sort of geothermal activity there that is really not well understood this was in fact one of the major uh discoveries that was made by that Nazi expedition that that took place in in, uh, late 1938, early 1939, they found a number of uh, geothermal lakes that that they were not expecting. Uh, And, you know, they took temperature measurements and so on and so forth. We don't really know. The problem is we don't really know that much about that Nazi expedition because so much of it after after it was returned to Germany, um, a lot of the results were, were classified, and they've been slowly kind of trickling out after the war. Very recently, as a matter of fact, there was a, a book published in Germany about that expedition. But again, it's it's kind of short on details. Um, it's a well-written book. It's a well-researched book. But even there, it's it still misses a lot of details. So I really don't know what to think about all of this. Um, there are a number of physics experiments going on down there with uh, neutrino detectors. And, and according to some stories, some of these detectors, which they use, they use the ice itself as... as Uh, a neutrino detector according to some of these stories they have managed to detect a few 
so there's something major going on down there. I really don't know, you know, at this point, like I tell people on my website, at this point, it's all high-octane speculation uh, because you've got so much weirdness. Uh, you know, there's no other way to put it. There's just so much bizarre weirdness uh, to the place that you really don't know what to make of it. I was, you know, I, I I began to get really suspicious when Secretary of State Kerry, you know, in the middle of one of the most hotly contested contested elections in American history, mm. you know, he's on this he's on this uh, diplomatic junket, let's just call it what it what it was, around the world, and then in the middle of it, he decides to go to Antarctica, <laughs> and. And, you know, the story that we were told was, you know, he's going down there to investigate global warming because he has a kind of a passion and a hobby and interest in it. And I'm thinking, my word, you know, he's the secretary of state for crying out loud. You know, he can call and get all sorts of, of climate change data, you know, at the State Department dumped on his desk if he wants to. He doesn't need to take a personal trip down there. Yeah. Not and, a lot to you know, see. Yeah, not a lot to see. Ice and penguins, you know. <laughs> what else is there? Um, and then, you know, this this followed a visit by the Patriarch of Moscow, uh, pa uh, Patriarch Kirill III. And we were told that he went down there to bless the little Orthodox chapel. And, uh, you know, that's true enough as far as it goes. There is an Orthodox uh, chapel in Antarctica to serve the Russian community there. But, you know, I got to thinking about that. You know, I used to I used to be Eastern Orthodox, and it doesn't take a patriarch to bless a church, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Any bishop can do that. So, you know, why are, why are we sending the patriarch of Moscow down there? You know, it's kind of a patriarchal photo op. And I, I thought, well, you know, given Secretary of State Kerry's visit, maybe there was another purpose to his visit. And we had Buzz Aldrin. You know, Apollo 11 astronaut followed up Secretary Kerry a few a few weeks after that visit, and in his case, it was even more bizarre because he he tweeted before he left um, South Africa. I think is where he was flying to Antarctica from, and just before he got on the plane to take him to Antarctica, he tweets, "Getting ready to go to the launch pad." And I thought, well, there's two ways you can take that, in, you know, <laughs> interpret that. We've got standard astronautees here for I'm getting ready to board the plane that's going to take me to Antarctica. So, in other words, if you interpret what he's saying there that way, nothing to see here, move along, I'm just going to Antarctica. Uh, the other the other way of taking it is I'm getting ready to board the plane that's going to take me to the launch pad, namely Antarctica. <laughs> And, you know, if you read it that way, it gets even stranger. And then then you had those alleged tweets. I've never been able to satisfy myself that he genuinely sent them. But you had those alleged tweets that he made while he was in Antarctica, apparently. You can tweet from Antarctica that whatever it was that, you know, he was looking at down there, it was truly evil and we better brace ourselves. And then he falls ill and has to be evacuated out of there. So you can add, you can add a third name huh. to a very, you know, to a very strange list of people that show an interest in Antarctica, 
um, you know, Secretary Kerry, Buzz Aldrin. Uh, Newt Gingrich recently went down there where, again, he's tweeting that the kayaking is lovely. (laughs) (laughs) I have to wonder about a former speaker of of the U.S. House of Representatives going to Antarctica merely to kayak, you know. Uh, you, Seems you, crazy you, for sure. It's, it's it's very crazy. I mean, come on, this is this is a this is a bizarre list already. A U.S. Secretary of State, uh, an Apollo moon landing astronaut, and a Russian Orthodox patriarch. <laughs> you know, it doesn't it doesn't get much stranger. You roll the clock back and you look at the Nazi expedition, and it gets even more bizarre because that expedition was sponsored by Hermann Goering. And, you know, the founder of the Luftwaffe, you know, also, incidentally, most people don't know this, the creator of the Gestapo. So we have Reichsmarschall Goering with an interest in Antarctica. So you can add Hermann Goering to the list of John Kerry, Patriarch Kirill III, and Buzz Aldrin. (laughs) Now, that's that's a bizarre list, folks, any way you slice it. Um, So, you know, to me... To me, it appears that something is going on down there, uh, and we're not being told what it is. We don't know what it is. It does Uh, seem like it would be a good spot if you were going to want to launch things without having them seen, too, you know? Well, exactly. And, and, you know, during this time period of of the patriarch to, to John Kerry, shortly after that period, uh, Lockheed Martin made some sort of announcement that one of its divisions was operating in Antarctica. And, you know, when that when that was announced, I thought, well, there you go. You know, this is a major American defense contractor, a huge recipient of black budget funds over the years. You know, you've got the Lockheed Skunk Works and so on. So I got to thinking, well, if you were going to launch or test things, uh, far from the public eye, where would you do it? And of course, Antarctica would be a perfect place to do some of this stuff. So yeah, I, I definitely think something very, very strange is going on down there. Physics experiments, apparent geothermal activity, other thermal anomalies that even on the face of it, um, you know, that little highway track that I mentioned earlier doesn't look to me to be very geothermal in nature. So, you know, what? just what the heck is going on down there? Uh, and nobody's talking. Yeah. Uh, well, I you know, know too. This, this problem. Like uh, Graham had mentioned earlier, I know that Strava Labs they make like the Fitbit things that people put on their. Um, oh, so that's the Fitbit maker then, the Strava Labs. So yeah, they make. I, I believe they make the. So they make the Fitbit apps. They make the health apps. So the that's wearable, basically the wearable device. You, you wear something on your wrist or whatever, and and you. Mm-hmm. And you run around and it does your heart rate. So what they did is they released a global heat map of where they released that had this heat data of where all their app was being used globally. And they assumed that since it was all completely um, anonymous, that they wouldn't have any privacy problems. But mm-hmm. what happened is it started showing all these heat maps ever because people are saying, well, if you think about it, anyone who's in a sort of secret military installation someplace with a Fitbit is on. trying to stay in shape. So it looks mm-hmm. like a bunch of these people have Fitbits on and you can see them like there's a there's a perfect circle in the middle of Yemen someplace. And there's these places in the middle of the desert where you can see like clear lines where people are jogging or running or doing they're using the app. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a couple in Antarctica. Like there's, there's one a, in yeah. Antarctica that's a perfect C. There's a perfect C, like the capital, like a C shape, and it's huge. It's got to be. It's like absolutely perfect C. So somebody's been in a Fitbit going in a C formation, and it's probably the size of a city. I mean, it's hard to get scale here. Yeah, it's but, pretty big. But it's I massive. mean, if you were to high octane speculate on that, it's probably not a track above on the ice somewhere. It's probably an underground installation that's huge it, I mean, it, if it's... It, it, yeah it could be i have no doubt that there are under underground installations there simply because we've had that confirmed with this neutrino experiment you know this this goes down in the ice uh several hundred meters right. so you know there's there's no doubt in my mind that they've got uh underground installations there the russians of course have been there uh drilling and experimenting around that, that underground lake Vostok. So yeah, there's there's no doubt in my mind something's going on there, and it would make sense to me that you'd have some sort of health telemetry monitoring for some of these installations. Um, the real question is just exactly what is it, and you know there the speculation's wide open. Um, I, I think it's very clear that if you have if you have a physics experiment on the one hand and you have the presence of Lockheed Martin on another, and then you've got you know go back a few decades and toss Herman Goering into the mix, you've got <laughs> you've you've got some sort of uh, military interest in the region for whatever reason. Uh, the ostensible reason for the for the German expedition was you know Antarctica is very rich and untapped. Uh, source on the planet for all sorts of mineral wealth and you know that's that was the cover story for the german expedition but uh you know during my research for the hess book which uh came out just recently last year i i discovered that you know hess probably did have a major role or at least knowledge of of that expedition because during the secret talks that he was conducting with the British, uh, a British uh, envoy of Winston Churchill asked Hess very directly what the status of the proposed peace between Nazi Germany and Great Britain, what the status of Norway would be, which I took to be code for Antarctica, because of course Norway had claimed the very region that the Germans claimed in their expedition, hmm. and the German Foreign Ministry, you know, denied the Norwegian claim prior to the prior to the war. So I think this was a way of 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 asking, well, you know, how are we going to handle Antarctica? What's going to be the spheres of influence there? So clearly Britain was interested in in whatever's going on down there. Clearly Nazi Germany was interested. You had high jump after the war, the big American expedition after the war. And that's another episode of Antarctica that's never, ever made sense to me. Because you had a a full-blown military expedition, quite literally. And the story that we were told about that expedition was, well, this was just to test tactics and and equipment in Arctic conditions. As if you have to go all the way there to do that. Yeah, why do we have to go to the other hemisphere of the world <laughs> to do that? You know, we can go to Alaska. Yeah, you can go to Alaska. You can go to Canada, you know, for crying out loud. <laughs> and it's a lot cheaper to do it. So, you know, that, that cover story just never washed with me. 
um, it, 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 you put all this together and, and every indicator is, number one, there's a major military interest on, on the part of several powers in that continent. Uh, that interest is ongoing. Uh, you have you have American presence there. You've got Chinese presence. You've got Russian presence, uh, British presence. You know, I, I discovered that one of the princes, either Prince William or Prince Harry, had also made a personal visit to Antarctica. And, and you can add throw in King Juan Carlos before his death. He also took a little tour to Antarctica. So something clearly is going on there, um, and we're not being told what what it is. I, my strong suspicion has always been that possibly beginning with the German expedition, possibly recurring with with the uh, high jump expedition, my my speculation has always been that they found evidence of some sort that Antarctica may have been inhabited at one time by intelligent life, either human or otherwise. Or, pa- or past uh, or ancient, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, an ancient, an ancient civilization. And, you know, I've mentioned this several times. If you look at one place on the globe that in its basic, uh, in its basic features fulfills the requirements of, of Plato's Atlantis dialogues, you know, of, a, of an entire continent submerged under water, well, there you have it. You know, it's a continent, and it's literally submerged under lots of water in the form of ice. Uh, and recent discoveries, incidentally, in Antarctica, they have discovered plants uh, beneath the ice, fossilized plants, uh, and so on. So in other words, at one time, Antarctica was a rather temperate climate. So we're, we're dealing with all sorts of stuff that seem to be pointing in that direction, in my opinion. And this, this certainly would be one of the reasons I think that you would have someone like Goering and Hess involved with, with Antarctica. Uh, I suspect that, you know, High Jump may have found evidence of, of a similar nature. And we're seeing this confirmed much more recently with stories of uh, Google photos and so on of what appears to be some sort of structures under the ice and so on and so forth. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, too, what you thought of some of those. Well, this began, um, I think, about three or four years ago. The time frame escapes me, but uh, I began getting people sending me all sorts of emails about a pyramid in Antarctica. And I looked at this. Yeah. And at the time, I concluded it was probably not a pyramid. You know, I, I zeroed a, in. Just a mountain, kind of, or just just a mountain that that looked like a pyramid. But you know, I left the question kind of open because it was such a perfectly uh, a perfect alignment and so on and so forth, like you would expect with a pyramid. But it was, you know, the other problem with it was it was just gigantic. Uh, you know, it, it dwarfs the the Great Pyramid. So I had to, you know, I had to conclude that, well, probably this is just a big mountain that peculiarly looks like a pyramid. But more recently, you've had uh, a number of allegations that they're finding through radar tomography and so on, finding what appears to be very rectilinear, repeated structure beneath the ice, which would be, uh, you know, one of the clear indicators of some sort of, of habitation. 
Um, so who knows? Maybe they, maybe we are finding evidence of, of some sort of lost civilization. But if so, you know, let's expand the argument. If they're finding evidence of that, why aren't we hearing about it? Um, and my suspicion is, is if that's the case, then they might be finding some pretty sophisticated technology that they want to keep quiet. And again, Lockheed Martin's presence in Antarctica suggests that they may be finding things like that and they need on-the-spot initial analysis, you know, contextual analysis and so on. So the question, as far as I'm concerned, is wide open. Uh, the field for speculation is wide open. Yeah. Now, there there has been one very interesting uh, claim made recently that really intrigued me. Uh, in fact, I even blogged about it very briefly on my website. Uh, somebody, and I forget his name, claims to have found on some of the cliffs that are visible from the oceans around Antarctica, and I forget where the location is, claims to have found evidence of a Sumerian presence there in that some of the the cliffs appear to present writing that is very similar to cuneograms. Hmm. And, you know, if, if there is a Sumerian presence of any sort in Antarctica, that's big, huge news. Uh, because, again, you know, this, this Sumerian civilization just appears out of nowhere, just kind of like Egypt. And, you know, it's got a fully fleshed mathematics and astronomy and everything else. So if that civilization left traces in Antarctica, then we completely have to revamp our, our narrative of, of uh, prehistory. And at what's going on? Then because then have that would be an obvious migration or sort of escape from whatever was happening. I guess. Well, it may be. It may not be a migration. Consider the other possibility that the migration is not to Antarctica, from, but from yeah. it. Yeah, that's from, what I mean. yeah, like they're escaping the whatever is right. happening in Antarctica that's turning into an, an into a fucking glacier. Glacier. Yeah. 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 It could be. Who knows? Um, it's it's anybody's guess. Um, now I'm not I'm not entirely satisfied that this guy's discovery is 100 uh, percent certain, but I'm not. On the other hand, I'm not willing to just toss it in the waste waste bucket right away, given all the other strange stuff going on down there. In other words, it's another little bit of possible corroborative evidence that maybe they're finding evidence down there of of some sort of ancient civilization and habitation of the continent. Uh, and if they are, then the real question comes back to what's Lockheed Martin doing there? <laughs> yeah, there's, well, there's that picture, too, of that that looks like a machine in the or cave an, kind of thing. Or and, it's an ice wall. Or an, yeah, I mean, and you wonder, you wonder if that, I mean, I, I, I don't really focus on pictures much because you just never know. I mean, you can't really prove right. pictures. You can't prove it's correct. You can only prove they're wrong. But but what do you, do you, do you have any thoughts on some of those pictures of... Uh, well, I haven't I haven't seen the one that you're you're talking about, so you know I'd yeah. have to pass on it. But, yeah, okay. But there's so you know the other problem here is there's so many pictures out there floating around about what they've seen or not seen in Antarctica that uh, you know it's it's like the Mars business. Um, yeah, there's exactly. So much, yeah, you know, there's so much now that 
uh, I think you can make a, a good prima facie case that something was up there on Mars of an intelligent civilization. And I think probably the evidence in Antarctica's case is fast approaching a similar yeah, level. Exactly. And then and then there is some legit strange things going on, like you mentioned in your blogs, that it's the the continent slash country or area that's the most um uh what would you call it like heavily bored like you're not allowed to to go in there right it's the most uh what did you what did you call it it was well it, uh, yeah access to the continent is very very strictly controlled uh you can visit there but it takes a great deal of of wherewithal to get permission to visit uh, and they don't usually open it up just, you know, to, to your average tourist, although New Zealand, <laughs> believe it or not, appears to be trying to do that. Um, you know, they're they're constructing basically a hotel <laughs> for people to come and visit. Hmm. But um, the thing the thing about Antarctica is not only is access so controlled, but in the middle of all of this strangeness, I blogged about this on my website. It was about, um, oh, I'm going to say about six months ago. Somebody, and I forget who it was, it was one of the people that you know sends me articles all the time. My, my website blogs are really community-driven because people send me articles all the time, and I just sit down once a week and try and go through them and, and figure out what I'm going to talk about. But everything I blog about is from material that people send me. Yeah. And that'll be on but, the show notes. That'll be linked in the show notes just for everybody as well. But somebody sent me this very, very strange thing. And when I read it, I thought, no, you've got to be kidding. So I went to the, to the government website and it was uh, the British government had put out a terrorist alert the, the home office had put out a terrorist alert for people traveling to Antarctica. <laughs> I thought, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and I, sure enough, I went to the, I went to the um, British government page and, and looked it up, and it was there. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is just, you know, this is too bizarre. You know, what are people going to blow up down there? A bunch of penguins, sea lions, and so on. Um but it was there, and that made me think, well, is there some sort of conflict going on down there <laughs> that we're not being told about? You know, um, which raises, again, the big question, because, you know, you had Admiral Byrd and Operation High Jump and his comments that he made in El Mercurio, the Chilean newspaper, about, you know, the U.S. better get ready to defend itself against fighters that can fly from pole to pole with tremendous speed. Now, the spin lately has been, well, Byrd was saying that in conjunction with the strategic thinking at the time that, you know, the Arctic was going to become a, a, a hot zone if a war were ever to break out between the West and the communist bloc. Uh, so that's the way they're kind of trying to spin his remarks now and they're you know the latest the latest thing is that they're trying to raise translation issues and all of the you know all of the normal academic stuff to to deflate the importance of what he said and the context and timing in which he said it uh, he said it after he he 
uh, called a quit to the expedition when the expedition was returning to the United States. And he said it to a Chilean reporter who duly reported it in El Mercurio in, in Santiago de Chile. So, you know, again, something clearly is going on down there, and it's anybody's guess as to what it is. At the center of it, I, I'm sticking with my hunch here that it's got something to do with, with ancient civilization that, and uh, possible ruins and possible technologies that they may have found down there. What about, the, what about those, you know, the old conspiracy and the rumors about the Nazis making it down there after the war? Um you know, and and uh, maybe uncovering some of that first. Well, that's one of my favorite things because I hear this all the time, and I've never bought into it. Uh, the and the rumor is begun, incidentally, by a, a group of neo Nazis themselves <clears throat> that are clustered in and around a fellow by the name of Friedrich von Matern up in Canada. Uh, a notorious neo-Nazi publishing house that uh, existed for a number of years after the war in Canada. Uh, this is where the rumor gets started. And the rumor basically is that the purpose of the Nazi expedition uh, prior to World War II was to scout out possible bases in Antarctica which again, you know, that makes sense from one point of view that if you want to, if you're preparing to launch a global war and you're going to be uh, conducting naval operations on all the oceans of the world, you're going to want to know about weather conditions and so on. So I've always, I've always said that if the Nazis had a base in Antarctica, it was probably along the lines of those automated weather stations that they erected at Spitsbergen in Greenland, northern Canada, and so on. They, they sent U-boats and they put up these little automatic robotical weather stations to report on weather conditions. So I can see them doing that. But, but the mythology itself is that they, they found big underground caves that led out into the ocean and that they set up a secret U-boat base and secret flying saucer UFO research base in Antarctica. That's the part that I think is nonsense because, number one, you would have to mount an enormous logistical operation to sustain a secret U-boat base, much less a secret research facility, okay? And that logistical operation alone would have just been way beyond anything that the World War II German Navy was capable of, of mounting. Uh, we need to remember that, that you know, Hitler called off the, the invasion of England, and I think the, the major reason that he called off that invasion was that he knew that logistically, it would have been a nightmare to support ground operations in the British home Isles across the channel. So do you uh, think, sorry, do you think, I just think of Argentina right away, because I think that's, I've heard, have I heard you mention before that you lend more credence that maybe some Nazis ended up in Argentina? Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, so yeah, the thing that jumps into my head right away is like Argentina has that sort of, 
proximity to, I mean, it's also the end of the earth. So there's that. Well, the, I don't know how many of my books you've read. I covered, I covered that whole angle of things in, in my book, the Nazi international, uh, because it is clear that in Southern Argentina, there was a large Nazi compound. In fact, it was so large, it, uh, the land area numbered in about 10,000 square miles. This was how huge it was. And in Argentina's case, you have something that Antarctica does not have by way of supporting secret post-war research. Number one, you've got a power grid. Number two, you've got a reasonably uh, technologically sophisticated country. Uh, number three, you've already got a large German business community that's pr been present in uh, that country since uh, prior to World War I. Uh, look at Juan Perón's intelligence chief, Ricardo Freude. Freude, of course, is not a Spanish name. It's a German name. Uh, so you have, you have an infrastructure in Argentina that can support not only a post-war Nazi compound, but post-war secret research, which in fact you find the Nazis conducting in Antarctica, or pardon me, in Argentina. So yes, in, in Argentina's case, southern Argentina, uh, it's all of this is clustered in and around a, a city in southern Argentina in the Rio Negro province by the name of San Carlos de Bariloche. Now that also may be familiar to people because, interestingly enough, where is the Secretary of State last weekend? Well, he's in San Carlos de Bariloche. Jeff Bezos, coincidentally, I just blogged about this on my website uh, the last few days. Uh, Jeff Bezos is also in Patagonia, founder of Amazon. Uh, one of the one of the major Bitcoin players is from Patagonia, an Argentinian businessman. Uh, so that region has a lot of very very interesting activity associated with it, and a lot of it has to do with Nazis. So if you're looking for post-war Nazi enclaves that are conducting secret research, it's southern Argentina you want to look at, not Antarctica. Does, and do you think that still exists today? Absolutely. <laughs> do you Absolutely. think, is that something I, that, because I've often heard America referred to as the fourth right. So do you think, like, is this something that we're, that we would face again? Or is this something, I mean, we've got Project Paperclip. So is it something that, that we're more complicit in? I find it hard to believe that we don't, that, you know, that everybody doesn't know. Well, they do know, and they have known since the end of the war. Um, let me let me give you an example. Again, you know, the the books are full of these details, uh, but I, I mentioned this in the Nazi International. There was a fellow by the name of Ladislas Farago that was an American OSS agent during the war. In the late 1970s, he publishes a book called Aftermath, Martin Bormann and the Fourth Reich, and it's all about Nazi survival in South America. And he argues the case that Bormann not only, you know, Bormann was, was 
Rudolf Hess's secretary prior to Hess's flight to Great Britain, and then he becomes Hess's replacement as the actual personal head of the Nazi party. So he's kind of the ominous grease behind Adolf Hitler. And if you look at the structure of, of the Nazi state from 1942 to 1945, while Adolf is, is running and losing the war, Martin Bormann is actually doing the day-to-day -day running of the Third Reich itself, okay? So he's, a, he's an enormously powerful, hugely influential major figure. For this man to have made it out of Europe and become more or less the head of this post-war Nazi international, as I call it, in South America is huge. Well, Farrago publishes his book and is roundly denounced in the lamestream corporate-controlled media, of course. And a friend of his was so outraged by the way that Farrago had been treated by the press after making a very careful argument in the book that he decided he was going to investigate all this Borman Nazi survival stuff himself. And his name was Paul Manning. And Paul Manning was a CBS news reporter. He was a close friend of, of Ed Murrow, the, the Walter Cronkite before Walter Cronkite. And he goes down to Argentina and he starts investigating all of Farrago's leads and so on. And he publishes a book called Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile. Before the book is published, he shows the galleys to Alan Dulles, okay, who, of course, at that time was the director of the CIA, okay? Yep. And he's arguing in the book, just like Farrago, that, that Martin Bormann not only made it out of Europe with a, a just a bucket load of money, but that he was also the head of this kind of post-war extraterritorial Nazi mafia, if you will, and he asked Dulles what he what he thought, and and he puts this in the preface to the book, and Dulles tells him, "You're on the right track." Okay. Now I mention all of this because Paul Manning discovered something that I mentioned in the Nazi International, and needless to say, it floored Paul Manning. Alan Dulles didn't seem to be all that ruffled by it, and it floored me when I read it. Around 1963 to 65, I forget the exact date, maybe he doesn't even have a date, but uh, sometime in the early 60s, Martin Bormann cashed a check for a couple of million dollars, a few in, million in dollars. In what year, sorry? In the early 60s, after oh. the war. After the war, just bear with me here, cashed a check for a few million dollars. The check was cleared and drawn on accounts at manufacturers Hanover and Chase Manhattan. Okay? And it was cleared by Deutsche Bank in Buenos Aires. Okay. And the check was written over his own signature. <laughs> okay, now, let that sink in. Two major American banks are clearing a check after the war, written on Martin Borman's own signature, and the check is cleared in Argentina 
via Deutsche Bank. So in other words, what that's telling you right there is that the major financial centers know that there's this group down there and that they've got lots of money, okay? And that Martin Bormann is the personal account holder for some of these for some of these accounts. And of course, Manning was floored. I was floored when I read that too. But it fits a wider pattern of, of uh, post-war Nazi survival and particularly just gigantic amounts of money at their disposal after the war. So yes, Argentina is, is uh, kind of the hub, if you will, of what I've been calling this this post-war extraterritorial Nazi international. So if you're going to look for secret Nazi post-war research, the place you look is not Antarctica, which I think is is a, a bit of a distraction that was deliberately concocted to get everybody you know going to Antarctica and looking there, rather than looking at what's going on in, in Argentina after the war. And incidentally, in Argentina, you had a Nazi scientist by the name of Dr. Ronald Richter that was doing very, very secret fusion research for Juan Perón. And Perón spilled the beans on this research in 1952 at a, at a press conference. He, he made an announcement. And he introduced Ronald Richter to the world press at that time. So that's in other a long words, time ago. That's a very, very long time ago. And again, that's another huge part of the story. It's in my book, Nazi International. Um, I, I can't even begin to tell you how strange that story really is. Because uh, I even I even mentioned other aspects of the story in the first chapter of my book called Grid of the Gods. Because when you start connecting all these dots, uh, you, you're left with a story that's not only so huge, but very, very clearly has been deliberately swept under the rug but uh yeah so there's there's secret nazi research going on in in argentina uh another thing that's going on in argentina with these nazis is that the horton brothers are there as is a a, a nazi aerodynamics expert by the airplane designer basically by the name of kurt tank if you don't know who kurt tank is he was the designer of, of the Fokker Wolf 190, you know, famous German fighter aircraft uh, during the second part of the World War. So, you know, you've got all these people down there not only doing fusion research for Juan Perón, they're designing him jet fighter aircraft, Delta Wing jets, you know, all of this wonderful stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely going on. What are they researching? Um. Well, the biggest thing is Richter's fusion research, um, and that story is so bizarre. I don't even know how to how to get into it. Um, Let's just dive right in. <laughs> well, again, I, it's it's it it's all laid out in in the book, The Nazi International. What I'm going to give you here is kind of a Cliff Notes version <laughs> because the details. There's so many details to this; it's not even funny. That's okay. We'll just add all these to the, the the required reading list for all the listeners after. Well, Richter was introduced, as I said, by Juan Perón in 1952 at this press conference. And Juan Perón, when he made the introduction, he boldly announced to the world that Argentina had solved the problem of the hydrogen bomb. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, and, 
And of course, the United States hadn't even detonated its first hydrogen bomb. That would that would be about nine months later. Mm. And so, of course, the world press absolutely went on the offensive and denounced Richter as a fraud, uh, a mountebank, a swindler, a counterfeit, and so on and so forth. And the the response of the world press was so overwhelming that Juan Perón set up a secret commission to investigate Richter. He began to think, well, maybe these people are right. <laughs> maybe, crazy. You know, may, maybe these Nazis are swindling me. So he, he called a, an Argentinian nuclear physicist by the name of Dr. Jose Balcero, who was at that time studying in, in the United Kingdom, back to Argentina to lead this commission. And they go trundling off down to San Carlos de Bariloche, where Richter has his labs and, and his fusion project centered. And they demand that Richter perform his experiments for them. And at this point, and I'm, I'm taking all of this from Richter's actual paperclip U.S. Air Force files. Uh, the documents are in the book. And again, they make for some very, very interesting reading when you, when you really parse the lines very carefully. So the first thing that Richter does when he reperforms his experiments is he forgets to turn on his radioactivity detection equipment, and then he doesn't even place it behind the radioactive shielding. And of course, Dr. Balsero takes this as evidence of incompetence. And then Richter goes on to make what at that time must have seemed like the most outrageous claim of them all. He claimed, and please follow me very carefully here because these details are hugely important. He claimed that he was getting fusion reactions in nuclear plasmas that he was rotating electromagnetically and then getting these reactions in that plasma through massive direct current electrical arcing. Okay. Like, so, in other words, like what? Like, uh, like, like, um, that's almost like fusion. Well, well hang that's on. like, well, it's like, for me, it made me think of welding right away. Well, that's exactly what he's claiming. He's claiming, in other words, to get fusion reactions at temperatures far below what the orthodox thermonuclear chemistry at that time said were possible. In other words, Richter was making a claim. So that's cold fusion? Yes, he was in, the, in 1952, he was making a claim for cold fusion and doing so by methods that were in some respects similar to the claims that Pons and Fleischmann would later make in 1989. With me so far? Yeah. <laughs> now, that's not all that Richter was doing. Because remember, he was rotating his plasma. He wasn't just uh, he wasn't just leaving the plasma inert, so to speak. He was rotating it electromagnetically. Now that should ring a bell, because that's exactly what I think was happening in the Nazi Bell Project. Hmm. And lo and behold, you, if ooh. you dig, yeah, oh yeah, big. Hang on, folks. I'm not anywhere close to done. Just sit tight. Richter, when he was in Nazi Germany, 
as and incidentally, remember, you're learning all of this from the declassified U.S. Air Force documents, which incidentally were only declassified in 1994. But anyway, Richter made the claim that he had observed these reactions in Nazi Germany in 1936. <laughs> okay. So push, push the development of all this fringe physics way back to 1936. Additionally, Richter was working on, on those fusion projects in Nazi Germany for a German corporation called the Allgemeine Elektrizitätsgesellschaft, which is the German version of General Electric, okay? The AEG company, in turn, was the company that was directly tied to the Nazi bell. All right? With me? Yep. So you look at Richter, you've got a scientist working for the company that was doing the Nazi bell, playing around with rotating plasmas, and that's what I think was involved with the bell. And he's doing all of this in Argentina, okay, for Juan Perón, under the ostensible project of fusion experiments. What I think you're looking at in actual fact is a continuation of the Bell Project in Argentina. And this is why I think Richter is behaving so incompetently for Perón's nuclear physicist, Dr. Balsero, because what he's trying to do is, is create the impression for Perón that this whole project is fraudulent, close it down. So that Peron, this is eventually what Perón does. And I think as a result of this, the project is simply moved elsewhere. Huh. So in other words, they, they, they did not expect the press conference that Perón gave and when he announced this to the world. They wanted to keep it secret. He announces it to the world based on certain experimental results that Richter has shared with him privately. And as a result of spilling the beans, they have to close the project down and move it real fast. Okay. Well, now, could, could, okay. Can I can I sidetrack you for a sec? Could there sure. could there be a little bit of a connection with like when did Paperclip happen and those scientists could go over to the states? Because the Robertson panel was in fifty two as well. I'm, which I'm is, getting to that. Okay. I'm getting to okay. Because <laughs> there's got to be a coincidence there with some of the Robertson panel because that was to ridicule that was to ridicule the whole thing, which would make sense if. If well, there was really something going on with that physics. Um, my my suggestion to you is get a hold of my book, Roswell and the Reich, and read it. And I'm getting to... Maybe I'm I, getting, <laughs> I probably have read some of it. That's where I'm getting it from, maybe. Yeah, read read the books because the details are in there. Um, I, I'm giving you I'm giving you kind of the, the Cliff Notes overview. Okay, okay. okay. All right, let's go back to Richter. Juan Perón, because of Balsero's findings, places Richter under house arrest and confines him to Buenos Aires, basically. And at that point, there's no interest in Richter until 1954, when the United States Air Force sends two people down to secretly interview Richter. And... When they interview him, they ask him, well, just exactly, and please remember, this is very significant because 1954 is after we have exploded our first hydrogen bombs 
including the infamous Castle Bravo test, which I'll get back to. Okay, I'm just, again, this is a Cliff Notes high overview. So they send these guys down to interview Richter in Buenos Aires and find out exactly what he was up to. And Richter says, well, I was rotating my plasmas electromagnetically and I was hitting them with gobs of direct current electricity in, in the form of electrical arcs and this was creating fusion reactions. And then he goes on to say something that left my jaw on the floor when I read it in these Air Force documents. And he says, well, what I think is happening is when you, when you create certain conditions in nuclear plasmas, that they can function for a brief moment and tap into the lattice structure of space-time and access the zero-point energy, (laughs) okay? And, you know, I read this, and this is one of the very first uses. In fact, as far as I can tell, it is the first use of the the phrase zero-point energy, okay? So, okay, wait a minute, stop here. We've got a Nazi scientist working for Juan Perón that's basically making claims about cold fusion and zero-point energy and rotating plasmas. He's working for the AEG company in Nazi Germany. After the war, his equipment in Argentina is supplied by, guess who, the AEG company. <laughs> okay. Which is General Electric. Of the, ger- which is, the German General Which is the German, German version of General Electric, okay? So the Air Force, I, I had to ask, well, why is the Air Force interviewing this guy that two years ago your own press is denouncing as a fraud mountebank and swindler? Why even bother? In other words, the Air Force even interviewing this guy is suggesting that they suspect there's much more going on here than meets the eye. Now, why would they do that? Well, in 1953, we set off a series of tests in the South Pacific called the Castle Tests. All right, Castle Bravo, Castle Coon, so on and so forth. And the Castle Bravo test has gone down in history as one of the most gigantic thermonuclear oopses in history because the pre-calculated yield of the hydrogen bomb that they set off was supposed to have been between 5 and 8 megatons. When they set it off, it ran away to 15 megatons. In other words, they got anywhere from almost double to possibly triple of the yield that they expected to get out of this out of this bomb. So in other words, that was a huge oops. <laughs> okay. Now, interestingly enough, when you look at the explanation for why this bomb ran away like it did, um, they will tell you that part of the lithium deuteride mixture in in the thermonuclear fuel was lithium-7. And I'm serious here, folks. They said that they did not realize that lithium-7, which formed about 60% of the lithium deuteride mixture, that lithium-7 itself would enter into the thermonuclear reaction and fuse. Hmm. Now, the problem here is is if you do your history and go back and look at Richter, let's remember, this is the fraud, mountebank, and swindler. 
he was telling Dr. Balsero that he was getting his fusion reactions with mixtures of lithium-7. So in other words, the standard thermonuclear chemist, and Balsero doesn't question this. He's not questioning whether or not lithium-7 can be part of a fusion reaction. What he's questioning is that a fusion reaction with it can take place at such low temperatures. So in other words, the thermonuclear chemistry is not all that unknown to Dr. Balsero, and therefore it would not have been unknown to the American engineers of the Castle Bravo bomb. So some other source has to be gating energy into the reaction. Enter Dr. Richter and his explanation, well, if you set off bombs or, or create thermonuclear fusion reactions under certain conditions, it can act as a transducer of the zero-point energy. <clears throat> so in other words, what, he, what he's really suggesting, what I'm really suggesting, and I realize this is all way out on the end of the twig of high-octane speculation here, is that standard explanations for the yields of thermonuclear bombs are incomplete because part of the yield from a bomb is coming from an interaction between the bomb and the structure of local space-time. That's why nations that join the thermonuclear club keep testing them. Because if you're doing, if you're constructing a bomb on the basis of just standard uh, thermonuclear chemistry, and all of a sudden you're getting reactions beyond your predicted yield, that energy's got to be coming from somewhere. Mm. And you're going to have to learn what that energy is and how it functions in order to be able to use your bombs. Okay? Mm. So, in other words, I suspect that the Air Force suspected something. And that's the reason they sent these people down to interview Richter. Now, it's interesting to note what happens at that point, because after these guys make their, their report, the reaction of American scientists to what Richter is saying to them is, it, it's just, it's mind-boggling. On the one hand, you have a bunch of scientists that continue to say, well, this guy's a fraud, a mountebank, a swindler, doesn't know what he's talking about, doesn't know what he's doing. But one scientist for the Department of Energy says, no, this guy is some sort of mad genius, and, and he's working at least two decades ahead of us here. So, you know, the, the, the evaluation of what Richter is saying to the Air Force, even after this interview, is very, very mixed, and you know it's it's at both ends of the of of the spectrum. It's it's an extreme evaluation. He's either a mad genius, or he's some sort of fraud, mountebank, and swindler. And I suspect that it's the former, simply because you wouldn't have sent people to interview him in the first place if you didn't suspect that there was more going on with his project down there in Argentina than met the eye. So where's paperclip? Uh, and I, I do remember that you asked that question. Yeah. One of the people that I think Richter worked with in Nazi Germany on this project for the AEG company was a fellow by the name of Dr. Kurt Davis, D-E-B-U-S. Now, who's Dr. Davis? Well, <laughs> interestingly enough, Dr. Davis 
was part of Von Braun's team. He was one of the paperclip Nazis brought over here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Dr. Davis worked with Von Braun, and he ended up, here we go, as the senior flight director at Cape Canaveral during the Apollo missions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> with me. He later, just before his retirement from NASA, also became the head of NASA's secret UFO desk. No way. Yes, sir. Is that I'm the not one done. Buddy hacked into? No, that, that's something completely different. Uh, he also becomes the head of a post-war West German sort of uh, private Area 51 type outfit in the Congo, by the name of Otrag, Orbital Raketent und Transport Aktionsgesellschaft, which was this big, huge private preserve in the Congo of about 250,000 square miles that was essentially the West German Area 51, right, you know, squatting right in the middle of Africa. So Kurt Davis ends up on the board of this uh, outfit after he retires from NASA. Okay, but in 1947, which is, of course, the year of Roswell. And the CIA creation. And the CIA creation. Kurt Davis is in El Paso, along with all of the other paperclip Nazis, including Von Braun and so on. After Roswell occurs, and I think this is hugely significant, the U.S. Army reopens the security vetting file on Dr. Davis, just on him, because they found out that he had denounced a colleague in 1942 to the Gestapo. And in doing the research, I discovered that, yes, he had indeed made a denunciation to the Gestapo in 1942 while he was working for the AEG company. And that meant that he's working. And by the way, I didn't mention that Dr. Davis is not a rocket scientist. He's a plasma and high-voltage physicist. Okay? Just like Richter. Okay? So in other words, he's working on the Bell Project as well. And he denounces a colleague by the name of Richard Kramer to the Gestapo, and strings are pulled to get Kramer released and back on the project. And the person pulling the strings to get him back on the project is a German physicist by the name of Abraham Ezau, E-S-A-U. And he is the personal plenipotentiary for guess who? Reichsmarschall Hermann Goering. So, in other words, this whatever this project is, and it's, folks, it's not the A-bomb here. <laughs> Please understand that. Many people think it is. It's not the A-bomb. Uh, whatever this project is, it's going all the way to the top of, of the Nazi hierarchy uh, to get someone who's a personal direct representative of, of Hermann Goering involved. Mm. So, in other words, we've got a nice circle here. Richter and Davis are involved in the same company, they, they both have the same type of physics background, orientation, and interest. And Richter ends up in Argentina doing fusion projects for Juan Perón, interviewed secretly by the U.S. Air Force. Davis ends up as the senior flight director for Apollo. Uh, 
And that should tell us something about Apollo, that there are aspects of that whole program that were probably not about rockets, folks. <laughs> okay. Um, so there you have it. That's my that's my Cliff Notes high overview of all of this stuff. That nice. Was, that was wonderful. Do you want to do you want to take a quick break and then, uh, if I may, and then yeah, and then maybe we can jump back into it, jump yeah. back into it here in a few minutes. Yeah, just give me a couple minutes. I won't be long. You bet. I wanted to talk to you about this this map here. I'll put it in the show notes. I like that. That's good. So, this map. What? Yes, I am. Perfect timing. Wow, that was great. That was a great little uh, wrap up there in a segment on the the whole. I mean, that just gives you a really good idea of where these paperclip people ended up, right? And, and the connections they had the to people, like so. That makes me really realize that there there could definitely could be possibility of you know strange well, then, aircraft being developed back then, and we're still hidden from from the public. Oh, yeah. And then you got the Robertson panel and all this bullshit with Roswell. And then, so then, for some reason, I thought a lead skillman in Coral Castle with the ring and the sure. arcing and all that. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's probably being you know developed and and researched in multiple areas, you know, around the same time. I mean, it's, it's something that people will stumble across probably that are into that. Well, well, let's put it, bring it down to practical terms here. Um, I think at the end of World War II, the American deep state or national security establishment or whatever you want to call it, was confronted with a threefold strategic problem 
uh, he had, of course, the communist bloc and, and, you know, we needed to know and find out very quickly what they were up to, what they were capable of and so on. Uh, you had this group of post-war Nazis, which by the time of Roswell, I think really hit home. I, I don't believe that Roswell was an E.T. event. I don't believe that Roswell was just a balloon either. <laughs> I think it was something very significant. Mm. Um, and my scenario has always been that it was possibly something Nazi that crashed there. And if it was something Nazi, and identifiably so, or at least that they suspected, which I think is borne out by the documents that the ufology community itself cites uh, in, in their interpretation of Roswell. Uh, I go through all of those documents in Roswell and the Reich with a very fine-toothed comb uh, to demonstrate that, no, what they're, what they're saying is really kind of ridiculous when we stop and think about it. Um, because those documents are constantly inquiring about Nazis. You know, where are the Horton brothers? Well, they're down in Argentina working for Juan Perón. <laughs> <You> <laughs> yeah. know? And on and on we could go. But um, they're, they're confronted with the second problem, which is this post-war group of Nazis. You know, what are they up to and what are they doing? Uh, which is why I think they reopened the security file on, on Davis himself, because by this point, they're, they're getting the idea that they're up to something, and it's not good. Mm. And, the, and the third problem is, of course, they've got a UFO problem, and I'm not saying that all UFOs are, are human or something like this. No, no. No, they've, got a genuine, they've got a genuine UFO problem they've got to deal with. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to set up a secret project to investigate all of it, and if possible, in my opinion, you're going to try and emulate technologically the performance characteristics of UFOs, and that means you're going to be setting up a Manhattan-style project on steroids. You've got to have a lot of financing for this. Like a missing $2.3 trillion? Yeah, bingo. Like the missing trillions. You know, Catherine, Catherine Pitts has come into this, you know, from this whole story from that angle because, you know, what are you going to use all that money for over that amount of time? Yeah. Decades. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think something like this is going on. And uh, this this is one possible explanation for it. And I think as a result, eventually uh, you realize that, that these post-war uh, Japanese and, and post-war Nazis have their hands on a lot of hidden loot, which would be a perfect way of funding all of this. So you literally crawl into bed with them. Well, not only uh, that, like I'm drawing that line a little further and Rumsfeld announces the missing money on September 10th, 2001. And then I would argue on September 11th, we see some sort of either insanely controlled demolition or some sort of <laughs> new technology unknown I, technology yeah, I, I i wrote a book about that um <laughs> of course yeah so, well I, I listen uh i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna hopefully tantalize you guys enough to to go out and get the book and read it because there's a bit of information uh in that book about 9-11 and I know this is going to sound Hollywood B-movie fake news crazy, okay? There are Nazi connections to 9-11. Oh, man. Yes. I thought you were going to say something out of Judy Wood's book, and I was going to be like, got it. But no, 
I wasn't no, expecting no, that. No, she was she was not the first to suggest uh, exotic energy weaponry. There was another fellow that uh, kind of beat her to the punch. Although I would say that Dr. Wood, if you look at her, uh, all of her evidence, uh, some of the some of the most convincing, I think, in her argument are these toasted cars that you find around New York City on that day because they're showing very anomalous types of burning, which I think are possibly due to, to microwave resonance effects more than anything else. Uh, and I think that you have to allow the discussion to take place for her hypothesis. She has been so badly treated by some of the people in the 9-11 truth community because they simply don't want to look at, at what she's saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I think a case can be made for all models of controlled demolitions. The problem, I think, is that people think that only one murder weapon had to have been used. You know, I think we're dealing with kind of Agatha Christie murder on the Orient Express scenario where certain players used certain methods, but they may have been unaware of other players using different methods because each of those hypotheses has something to say uh, for them. So yeah, I could see a know, threefold for sure. Uh, that's, in fact, the argument that I make in, in uh, uh, the 9-11 book, uh, that I think that you're dealing with a penetrated operation. In other words, you've got not two layers to the operation, the, the patsies flying the airplanes and then rogue elements within the American deep state. I think you've got a third layer, which is acting for its own purposes and to some extent counter to the purposes of the second level. So in other words, I think there's three levels to this operation, not just two. And that's a penetrated operation. Uh, so the Nazi angle, I won't, I won't get into here. I'm going to leave it out there as, as hopefully a carrot <laughs> to, to have people go read the book. Because when I ran across this information, again, my jaw was just on the floor. And I, I literally said out loud, you know, nobody was in the room with me. But when I ran across it, I said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so what, which book is that then? Is that the... Uh... Uh, Secret fi uh, Rogue Network, Secret Finance, or pardon me. Hidden Finance, Rogue Networks, and Secret Sorcery. Okay. That's okay. the Fascist International How many on the list now? Yeah, there's a few, so few books four on so yeah, far? Three, three or four Ooh, on the Perfect. The list, yeah. Perfect. So, so then, then getting back to the, the other sort of overarching thing about the UFOs and, the, and Antarctica and all that. So I was going to ask you about the Secret Space Program, which I, I don't know if I like the name of that, but... It's kind of what you were talking about, you know, the uh -huh. UFOs were the big problem, one of the three big problems back then. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, so I agree, there's not, it's not just, you know, there's, there's humans flying around in these things too, I believe. I mean, and there's some, uh -huh. some secret technology. So where is that being, you know, developed and launched and all that? I mean, and Antarctica sort of can fit that. If you start to get the high octane speculation, that brings us back to Antarctica again, because, you know, that's, one, I mean, besides the climate, there's that's the the most um, you know hard to access secretive place. Where I mean, right. I'm looking at this map, <clears throat> this this heat map from the from the Fitbits again, and there's like, I mean, there's a perfect sea formation of you know somebody's Fitbit in the middle of the Antarctic, 
which is, you know. Well, again, my my problem with the idea of developing the technology there, you might launch it from there, but developing it there, actually building the facilities to research and then put it together in Antarctica would be an enormous logistical operation. And I don't think, strictly speaking, it would be necessary to yeah. put it down there. Yeah, yeah. It could be developed underneath in the state somewhere. I mean, there's all there's all kind of underground facilities all over. Right, right. So. right. You, you've got so many underground facilities, and, and some of them, you know, from the rumors, quite large. Yeah. Uh, so I, I personally think probably if you're looking at where this stuff is being engineered and developed, you'd have to look at, you know, all those installations in, in the Southern California desert, uh, Utah, places like this. Yeah. Um, and you know, similarly for the Russians, they've got their they've got their deep bunkers in and around the Baikonur Cosmodrome, and they're building another huge facility in in eastern Siberia that uh, I strongly suspect has uh, a lot of stuff we're not being told about. Um, you know, so I would look at I would look to places like that rather than Antarctica. But Antarctica, on the other hand, would be as as you suggest, it would be a perfect place to. Uh, test some of these things, uh, the launch them. Wild. Right, right. The last wild, wild west in a way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hmm. <laughs> you know, that tracking all the way back to there, now that you mentioned that, kind of reminded me that I was going to ask you, so did, do you have any, clearly there's been some sort of um, climate change in the last couple of thousand years in Antarctica, do you have any sort of hypothesis as towards what caused that? Is it a, more of a pole shift or a cooling or, or what happened there? Yeah, I think we're looking, I think we're looking at, at uh, well, I think we're looking at, at natural planetary geodetic physics. Uh, and when I say that, I'm thinking too that if this is a phenomenon not simply confined to planet Earth, there's some suggestive data about the other planets in the solar system. Uh, the sun itself appears to be in a weird sort of cycle right now. I think all of these things, I, I'm an open systems physics guy. I think all of these things are open systems that they're connected with each other in ways that, that we don't really comprehend or fully understand. Uh, so I think a lot of this is 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 natural geophysical processes rather than anything that mankind is, is doing. I think mankind is doing certain things to attempt to control this process or at least engineer it or damp it or uh, exacerbate it to a certain extent. I certainly think that uh, things like CERN, the Hadron Collider, have some sort of possible geophysical consequence that, that they're secretly studying. Uh, I think ionospheric heaters like HARP, ISCAT, and so on, have similar geophysical effects that they don't like to talk about. We're certainly seeing some sort of geoengineering going on with the chemtrails and all of that. Uh, exactly what they're trying to do, you know, that's anybody's guess. There's all sorts of theories out there about it. So, yeah, I do think that we're looking at uh, geophysical processes and that these things, and chemtrails included, are trying to understand, control, manipulate, and so on. 
Uh, I just don't think that we're being told the full story about all of this. And hence, we get a lot of conspiracy theories about it. Yeah, Speaking totally. of conspiracy theories, what do you what do you think this whole seeming rise in the movement that Antarctica is really just a, a wall at the edge of the earth? What that seems to be gaining more traction. It's I haven't the, heard it. <laughs> the, the, well, it's it's the flat Earth model. Oh. Uh, we we tend to think I, that that is being propagated for some reason. Yeah, I I I tend to think that there's somebody pushing this flat Earth business. Um, but as far as that theory and its relation to flat Earth, uh, I don't think about it at all. Uh, and and by that, I mean, I don't think about it in the same sense as I don't argue with people that say two plus two equals five. Uh, I just uh, I just don't waste my time with them. Um, uh, you know, if if you're that that if, about if, answers the question. I think that's perfect. Yeah, if, I mean, if if you're stupid enough to believe in that theory, then then there's no point arguing with you in the first place. Uh, you know, I, and I've I go back to that very strange Art Bell episode. You know, when he came back, he had on a flat earther and a scientist, and the poor scientist, I, I felt so sorry for him because it was clear that he was dealing with invincible ignorance, and you know, it was it wasn't much of a discussion, to be quite honest with you. Well, I wonder. I wonder what, as far as the climate goes, Darren. Like we were, we were talking about this a lot because of the whole global warming thing and all that. And we we were under in in Calgary in in northern North America. We were under a mile or two of ice not too long ago, like eleven thousand years ago. So I wonder. Mm. I wonder. You know, eleven, twelve thousand years ago. I wonder what you know what Antarctica was like back then. I'm not sure what. Uh, what you know? What the situation was there? Was there less ice, or like when was it? You know, more of a, t- a temperate climate. Are we talking thirty thousand years ago? Or I mean, it could fit in with that, like you were saying, with that whole Atlantis thing, where you know, back before the ice age, you know, started. I, maybe. That that I don't know. I do know that there is something called the Vostok Ice Core that was cored out in oh, Antarctica yeah, right. yeah. by uh, Russian scientists, I believe, and. I don't know exactly. I'm not familiar enough with what the Vostok Ice Core discovered or disclosed, but um, the general gist of it is that the idea of, of uh, global warming is somewhat challenged by it. I don't know how. I don't know that much about it, as I say, but um, it it does suggest the idea that that these planetary climate models need some drastic. Uh, rethink in some respects and to be honest i've never been on the global warming uh bandwagon myself um i think i think there's too much data out there that that science has has already been badly badly manipulated to drive the agenda have you ever thought about about digging deeper into that as an important issue that somebody like yourself could really make a difference on or well, I not I, personally. I think it is an important issue, but it's not an important issue for me. I've got too much on my plate that I want to do in, in other areas that I just don't have the time to look into it. Um, I've, I've got a lot of things that are on my on my book writing agenda. Unfortunately, that's not one of them. That doesn't mean it's, I don't think it's important. It's just it's just not something I anticipate myself looking at. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on SpaceX continuing that rocketry line? 
Oh boy, yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts on on this privatization of space that we see going on. Um, that could be a continuation in some sense, right? The way I look at it is that space, in a nutshell, um, that space was privately and secretly collateralized at a very early point in the development of this hidden system of finance that was put into place after World War II to support all these black research projects. They had to have some way, first of all, if you're going to run a hidden system of finance, you have to have the participation of the major prime banks of the West in some form or fashion. Uh, and that means that to a certain extent, they know something that they may not know the complete extent of it. But how do you get bankers to go along with that idea? Well, you tell them, we will collateralize space. You can have a portion of the profits of whatever we find out there. Um, I think this is a huge part of the story and that what we're watching now with the space commercialization and privatization is the end result of deals that were made long, long ago. Uh, the objective, as far as the deep state is concerned, is to have a reason to weaponize space itself. Uh, because obviously, if you're going to have major commitments to commercial interests out there, you have to protect them. Now, the question becomes, protect them from who? <laughs> well, other competitors, obviously, and anyone else that might be out there looking askance at human activity. So I think these these things were thought out long ago in, in the aftermath of World War II and all of these major blocks put into place. And we're just watching, you know, the unfolding of something that has been privately and secretly part of the agenda for a very long time. Yeah, it just seems so weird, though, if they have the technology you know, underground that can go into space. I mean, like that's, that's, that's a possibility. Why even, why even, I don't know, like invest, well, invest in, in this, you know, even, even SpaceX is not. You, you are know. raising, you are raising a crucial, important point. And let, let's put it this way. If you're going to go mine asteroids, or the moon, or Mars, as everybody's talking, you know, from the Chinese and Indians, Europeans, everybody's talking about it. Even the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, for crying out loud, is talking about it. Um, if you're going to do that, chemical rockets just ain't going to get the job done, folks. So the question really is why do we see all of this hype about privatization and spacex and so on and so forth now i suspect that what they're really doing is they're creating the climate of public opinion to roll out these technologies eventually and reveal their existence and I realize that that sounds a bit kind of like making a prediction for the rapture because we've been hearing these types of predictions from, from the ufology community for decades. <laughs> yeah. But I, I base it on several very weird circumstances that if you've been tracking these types of stories for the last decade, you'll notice some very intriguing things. Number one, they appear to be coming with increasing frequency. And number two, they are accompanied by strange divestitures 
within the petroleum industry of major players that have been invested heavily in petroleum that are now divesting themselves of those interests. The Rockefeller Foundation a couple of years ago being the most recent example where they announced, you know, they just came right out and announced we are divesting ourselves of all petroleum interests. Well, the question is why? Why would they do that? And you dig around a little bit more and you find out, well, they've been talking about fusion and all these advanced technologies in their secret Bilderberg meetings and so on and so forth. Um, the Saudis are making a similar move now to move their country away from petroleum dependence. And I suspect the real reason is that they realize that these technologies are about ready to come out into the open and that we've got to create the climate of opinion to get everybody adjusted for it. I think the cryptocurrency phenomenon is another part of this story in a certain sense because if you're going to conduct let's be honest, what we're talking about is we're, we're talking about interplanetary commerce is what we're really talking about. Yep. And if you're going to conduct interplanetary commerce, you've got to have a system of financial clearing that can handle it. Well, you need, first of all, a secure system, number one, and you need a system that is capable of being extended into space, number two. So I think all of this talk about cryptocurrencies is somehow related to this effort to expand into space. We see the Russians and Chinese putting into place their own international system of financial clearing. And again, I think this is uh, partly to compete with the West and partly to build redundancy into the global clearing system. So yeah, it looks to me like all the moves, all the essential moves that you would uh, make to, to commercialize space are being made and, and being done. And let's add, let's add one final little piece of information to this idea that you're watching a, uh, an orchestration of, of public consciousness by, by these stories. A few years ago, DARPA made a very significant announcement, and it went almost totally unnoticed in certain major media circles, but it's a huge, huge story. DARPA announced that it wanted the United States to be warp capable in 100 years. <laughs> in other words, they set as a national strategic goal the ability to have essentially a Star Trek type of technology. And again, it makes sense if you're starting to talk about commercializing space. Chemical rockets and all of this, you know, all of this Model T claptrap isn't going to do a bit of good if that's what you're talking. You have to have truly heavy lift capability that is capable of true interplanetary operations and not just carrying, you know, three or four people to another planet. Um, so, yeah, that's one thing. NASA, the reason DARPA made that announcement is that there's a scientist at NASA by the name of Dr. Harold White who heads up NASA's proof of concept in, in warp drive experiments, believe it or not. Dr. White is the physicist that reworked the equations for warp drive that were published in the late 1990s by the Mexican physicist Miguel Alcibier. Uh, in Alcibier's version of, of the metric, you have to have the mass energy conversion of a mass the size of the planet Jupiter, which of course would be utterly impractical for you know warp drive and humans achieving it in the near future. 
uh, White reworked the equations and showed that, no, you don't have to have a mass-energy conversion of anything near that size. It's much more, it's much smaller to be able to achieve those effects and just narrowly within the bounds of human feasibility. So that's why DARPA made the announcement. That's why uh, Dr. White is heading up NASA's proof of concept experiments for all of this. Is that that M-wave so, yeah. thing? Pardon me? Is that that M-wave? No, no. This is, this is actual space warping technology that we're talking about. <clears throat> yeah, the, M, the, the M-wave thing is in itself fascinating because they've also done proof of concept experiments of that engine and proven that, yes, it really does generate a thrust. The Chinese have also uh, been working on this and, and made similar demonstrations. So that, to me, is a demonstrated technology that's there that can be uh, modified for, you know, quick uh, interplanetary purposes if necessary. So, yeah, things are changing faster so, than... So the deep, the deep state's bringing out their toys, like, slowly, slowly, slowly. The UFO disclosure thing is, is almost a reality for a lot of people. So do you think that the Tom, you know, the Tom DeLong and the, and the, uh, the To the Stars Academy or whatever this is, is that part of that plan, or is that people breaking away and, no, and really no, trying think... to come across, come out with, like, their own... Private development of this stuff because of what they think they know. Uh, I think I think in his case it's a bit of both. Uh, it is I think a marketing operation to to gain control of the narrative, uh, but it's also it's also an operation to drive the meme that these technologies are just around the corner. Uh, yeah. The, the part of controlling the narrative, I think that personally, I think that this was done in response to the two secret space program conferences where I spoke, because those conferences really were threatening to change the conference culture. Because if you look at the lineup of speakers at both of them, there were not the usual list of people talking about their abduction experience or, you know, E.T. showed me this and E.T. showed me that and there are space brothers and so on. These were real nuts and bolts conferences of people just presenting research, um, which is very different from your standard UFO conference. Which ones were those again, just so I can put a note here? Uh, the, secret, the Secret Space Program Conference in San Mateo, California yeah, in 2014. Yeah. And then the one that the following year in 2015 in Bay Strip, Texas. Okay, certainly, thanks. Uh, both of those conferences, I think, were perceived by the narrative controllers as real threats. Okay. So they had they had to gain control of the narrative. I think that's what you're watching with the blue chickens people. Uh, and and I think that's what you're watching in part with with DeLong and the two the Stars Academy. Is it a deep state play as well? Because and, uh, sure, I, and, and I mean I mean more more about the current political climate. Like let's say, for example, like Tom was very, very uh, very, very harsh against Trump, and he and he was, you know, trying to. And everybody's in the disclosure movements pissed off about the Hillary and and Podesta thing. And I, I almost feel like that whole video that came out with the New York Times and Tom DeLonge's thing, and all, it almost feels like a play from the other side of the deep state. Like there does seem to be a legitimate deep state war going on as well. And then this disclosure yes. and this this uh, secret space technology and the free energy and all this stuff has to play into that because like, you know, is, 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 is there one side of the deep state actually trying to bring this out to the public and the other side is trying to get a, a jump on it or like, there's gotta be something going on with that as well. 
I do think Trump's election, to a certain extent, derailed a timetable. Uh, but more importantly, it derailed control of the narrative. Yeah, and I think this is what I think this is what may be playing out to some degree in some of these so-called disclosures recently <laughs> is that they're they're trying desperately to regain control of the narrative. I don't think they're going to succeed. Uh, in in the DeLong case, you just have the presence of too many people that have CIA or other governmental associations, and they're all of one political stripe. It seems to be. Uh, and too many people are cynical of that already. So, in other words, they have they have squandered their trust, and it's going to be a long time before they get it back. Um, but well, I do think I do think you're correct in in viewing what's playing out now politically as a uh, war in the deep state. I, I call it factional infighting or mafia wars. Uh, I always thought that you know I, I've said. Uh, even when Trump's candidacy was first getting going, that you're looking at a deep state candidate from certain factions within the deep state, uh, and Hillary, you know, representing other factions within the deep state. It's it's in full flower right now. Yeah, um, you're looking at you're looking at this same process going on elsewhere in other countries. So, in other words, I don't think this is confined simply to the United States. Yeah, totally. It's more of a global thing, really, isn't it? Right. Yeah, it is. Um, you see it going on in France. You see it going on in the United Kingdom. You see it going on, certainly, in Germany. Eastern Europe, too, I think. And mm -hmm. Eastern, Eastern Europe. You see it going on in Italy. Uh, you know, all the major European powers, in other words, are part of this same kind of factional infighting process that we see happening in this country. About the only country that's been immune from it to a certain extent is Russia because, you know, they had their deep state factional war when they overthrew the Soviets. And Canada, so, Canada's um, kind of stuck too right now. And Canada's stuck, you know. They've, they've, got, a, they've got a twit in office up there, but anyway. Canada's <laughs> just like a slug, just fucking, you know, we're just in slow motion right now. Well, you know, it's a shame too because Canada, the problem, you know, the problem is that Canada is a major Western economy. It's a technologically sophisticated country. It has had its own uh, its own involvement in a lot of these these uh, very very secretive research projects. Uh, you know, it's it's been involved for a very long time. So the stakes are very high for Canada. But uh, this is you know this is something I think is is. As I said, it's, it's going to spill over from American borders. It's already spilling over, I think, to a certain extent in Australia. Uh, it's going to spill over inevitably into Canada as as all of these factions realign because the uh, the global loney faction, let's put it that way, as I like to call it, the global loney faction that, that Hillary represented is has really been dealt a blow, and I, I don't see it stopping anytime soon. Yeah. Well, that seems to be like the cat out of the bag for the media in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Like it's really only in the last five or six years that I even started, you know, like this is this seems like bullshit. And then, you know, like <laughs> here I am like five, six years later. And after this whole thing, it's like this is just all propaganda. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, fuck, if they can do this, if they were doing this, I mean, now there's some pushback at least. But if you go back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it's like people handing out pamphlets and fucking parking lots and shit. So if you go back a hundred years, 
There's the sky's the limit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like everything is almost in view right now if you want to see it. Everything's exposed, and now you just right. have to you have to you know parse it all and see what what's what's good and what's garbage and throw out the junk, which is a difficult task to do. But I feel like it's almost all out there now. Yeah, it's it's. I wouldn't say it's all out there, but what's happened is you've had a, a, a dramatic shift in the climate of opinion. You've had the internet revolution. You've had the rise of the so-called alternative media. Uh, you've had a number of researchers for several years that have been pounding certain things home and, and are now being uh, at least acknowledged insofar as the mainstream media is now putting out spin pieces. Yeah. Uh, you know, marketing ops to regain control of, of certain narratives. Uh, I don't think they're going to be successful in that. Uh, I really don't. Um, you know, I've said to many people, if if they take away internet freedom, I'll just bang out books on a typewriter and do it Russian Samus Dot fashion. Um, they're not going to silence this thing. So I think their tactics now have have indicated a certain sense of surrender in that they realize they've got to regain control of the narrative uh, politically and in every other way. And that's that's simply not going to happen. There's too much opposition to their to their agenda. There's too many people awake. And not, not just in this country, in your country, in Australia, certainly people in Europe are just about, you know, they've just about had it in certain circles. With so, with what's going on, so couldn't couldn't know an ultimate way to regain that narrative be disclosure or a, or Project Bluebeam or a fake invasion or what? I mean, if if you if you had in your in your back pocket the last card to play, mm -hmm. it would be for the U.S. because other countries are way farther ahead. I mean, other cultures are way farther ahead. I mean, the star people are just you know whatever. It's a it's a it's a known thing. People just probably laugh at the states for their. Uh, you know, in unacceptance of other realities, but that could be the card that you play, right? Is, is you control the narrative on disclosure and that would give you some sort of global control really. Wouldn't I it? think, I think, no, I think even the disclosure narrative within ufology is in deep trouble because um, the, to a certain extent, the DeLong operation, I think is an attempt to do this but the way they did it was so clumsy. I mean, the narrative that they put out has already collapsed. Yeah. Uh, you know, the video has already been analyzed to death. It's people have called it into question. Really? Uh, oh yes, down here, absolutely. Uh, Dark journalist has done a number of, of uh, pieces about this whole thing uh, as as being a marketing operation, called starting it. you know, starting yeah, a cult, starting with the, the blue chickens people. Um, and then, you know, a much more sophisticated version with DeLong. But even that uh, appears to be on shaky ground in that all of the disclosure, the videos and everything have been questioned. So, you in, know, in what way, sorry to interrupt you, in what way have they been questioned? I haven't, I haven't really been following it since like, like that, at that level of detail. Um, they have called into question the the provenance of the video. They've called into question uh, what's his name, Alessandro, and his credentials and what he's saying. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, get a hold of the interviews with Dark Journalist yeah. or interview yeah. him because you know he's done he's done some yeoman's work on all of these things. Yeah. Some of the guys that we talk to in our in our chats that we have perpetually going on and, and on the podcast, they've mentioned that a, a couple times. I just haven't had time to look into it. Yeah. So, you know, that narrative is, is collapsing quickly. 
Um, they they are. Let's put it this way: I, I think they were not entirely successful with the DeLong operation in realizing the political opposition. You know, all of this was supposed to be a done deal. Hillary was supposed to be queen, and right. we all we'd all march gloriously into the wonderful socialist future that she had planned for us. But um, that fell apart. And they went ahead with, with the disclosure aspect of it anyway. And I don't think they were counting on the fact that this alternative community is much more sophisticated than they give credit to. Uh-huh. Um, so they're not able to spin things like they, like they were. About the only big thing that came out of it was the New York Times ran an article on it, and everybody said, wow, for them to even acknowledge it is is interesting. But when you look at what they're acknowledging, they're acknowledging a program, supposedly, that was put into place by the former um, Senate Democratic Majority Leader, Senator Reid from, from Nevada. And when you're looking at the amounts of money in this program, it was it's something peanuts, like, yeah. it's, it's peanuts. And, you know, it, it, to me, this is just a limited hangout position. It's not genuine disclosure. Because if, you, if you've been following the serious ufology researchers, Richard Dolan, uh, people like this, have been pointing out that there has been a secret UFO program since the end of World War II. And it, in, it involves billions of dollars, not to mention all the missing trillions we talked about earlier. Yeah, so, but you know, the, yeah, to but me, the, this isn't disclosure. It's a limited hangout. No, not at all. But this has been enough for normal people, in quotes. Normal like, people. like my friends that I, you know, my old friends that don't Normies. don't follow, like don't talk about all this stuff. I mean, they I can talk to them about it, but they're just sort of, you know, humming and hawing about UFOs. I mean, it's changed their mind because of uh, just something coming out like this in the New York Times. So it has done something to, to bring this out into mainstream society a little bit more well yeah you can look at it that way and that's true but the way i look at it is okay the new york times is to this issue as the weekly reader is to national news in other words yeah you're catching up the first and second graders with an issue but the point now to drive home to those people is that there has been a community out there saying this with much better research yeah for decades, decades yeah. you know, the New York Times is just kind of a fluff piece. So if if they really want to get on the bandwagon, wake them up and realize that this this what's being admitted here is just really kind of nothing. Uh, it's it's a limited hangout position to cover their tracks and and get a hold of a narrative again. Um, so. I, I view it. I, I view it that way. You know, you're, you're talking to first and second graders and. Uh, I'm not interested in catching those people up. They're, you know, they're going to be caught up eventually anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, what are you interested in in the future? You've mentioned you've got a whole bunch of topics to do. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're coming out with books like crazy. You've got an online community that you hang out with, and um, you know, your <laughs> blog and 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 answer, you know, go over a bunch of articles and all that. And you're into the geopolitical part a little bit. So what what's uh, what are you working on? I have, to, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, I never talk about what I'm going to do in the future. Uh, the reason is I've had to learn the hard way. Uh, I have, I have before talked about uh, what I'm going to do. And then all of a sudden I'm confronted with somebody else doing a book that spins it in a certain direction. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I go so far, folks, as to order books from Amazon and other people about things I'm not even remotely interested in researching simply to, to deflect attention from what I am doing. Um, because I know that I've been uh, watched and that they've put out spin pieces shortly after some of my books come Ooh, out. Yeah. So, you know, I just don't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Do you have any thoughts on, speaking of narrative collapses, do you have any thoughts on this seemingly beginnings of some sort of reunification in Korea? Uh, Or is that just a new narrative? I think to a certain extent it is distraction because, I mean, come on, Korea and the United States. I mean, if Korea did anything of that of that nature, the Chinese and Russians would be in there so fast to put a stop to it. It would make our heads spin. So, I, you know, to me, in a certain sense, Korea has always been a distraction. But on the other hand, it is significant because you'll recall a few years ago, a South Korean government was elected that made a big pitch to the North Koreans. You know, let's just you and you and us, not the Chinese, not the Russians, not the Americans, not the Japanese, that just you and us sit down and try to sort out our differences. And of course, that government quickly fell. <laughs> okay, the United States exerted pressure. I think now what you have is a realization that the time is right for those types of discussions to take place simply because America is no longer capable of sustaining this unipolar world, this this Pax Americana, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're, we're badly overextended. Our military is in such a state of uh, disrepair uh, you know, we're training gender-sensitive soldiers, and I can guarantee you they're not going to be much good against the Russians or Chinese. Uh, it's just in a bad state of repair. And I think this is reflected in the recent strategic analysis document that came out that uh, the Trump administration published. Because if you read between the lines a bit, you've got the usual America rhetoric in it. But if you read between the lines, what it's really talking about is we've got to retrench a bit. Uh, We're no longer capable of sustaining all of this stuff. We've got to prioritize our commitments. And that's really an acknowledgement that this has become a multipolar world. And hence, I think the Koreans understand this. The Japanese certainly understand this because under Mr. Abe, You've had this very, very quiet Japanese rearmament program going on. You've had Mr. Abe conducting some just mind-blowing diplomacy with the Russians and concluding some, some deals with them that uh, are really, when you, when you get right down to it, kind of breathtaking. So Abe's government is presenting all of this to, to the world as, yes, we're willing to do our fair share to help America with Pacific security. But, you know, the long-term realization in Japan, I think, is that they cannot rely on the American empire to protect them anymore. And hence, they've got to rearm. And I think that's the real, that's the real agenda there. You see the same thing going on in Europe. So um, there's a lot geopolitically taking place to, that, to me, is reflecting this end of the unipolar world. Certain segments, obviously, in America are 
not going to let go of the unipolar idea. They're deeply entrenched in, into both political parties. They're deeply entrenched in, into all factions of the deep state. Are those the but, people trying to start a war? Oh, they've been trying to start a war for a long time. You know, um, you've got people like Senator Mac McCain, who I like to call Mac insane. Uh, you've got Hillary and her anti-Russian pronouncements and so on while she's doing uranium deals with them. Uh, you've got people that are trying to ratchet up Cold War tensions again simply for the purposes of serving the military-industrial complex. Islam didn't work out because really in the final analysis, Islam is really not much of a military threat. It's a cultural threat to be sure, but not a military one. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's there's still a deeply entrenched uh, military-industrial complex in this country that, that really no one has been adequately dealing with. Um, and part of the reason is that the factional infighting going on now, I think in a large part, involves the military aspect of, of the deep state versus the uh, financial and intelligence aspect of the deep state. So all of that talk, unfortunately, is on hold in this country. I think you're going to see, if you're going to, if you're going to see changes in uh, military thinking and so on, the place to look is, is going to have to be Japan and Europe. Yeah, it's just disgusting Europe how we're seems moving ready to, to rip itself apart. Well, and and create their own <laughs> uh, their own army as well. I mean, it's just disgusting how you think that now in 2017, 2018, that We'd be moving towards less war and conflict, and yet people are ramping up. I mean, Europe's mm -hmm. ramping up, and the states. I mean, it's just disgusting that we're not fucking gaining any ground. The, the military-industrial complex is so vast, and it's just going to keep mm -hmm. keep consuming weapons well, and, and war. It's just disgusting. Well, it, it can't go on in this country, at least. I can't speak for Canada. I don't know that much about your defense. On. No, no, but, we have but, nothing. Uh, you are defense. Well, the problem in this country that has got to change, and it, it's, people are waking up to this, uh, is in this country, we're getting very, very little return uh, for our, our military dollar. We've got this boondoggle of the F-35, you know, the airplane that doesn't really work. Well, I mean, who knows where that money went, though? Well, the problem, some, you know, sunk into something what, else. What I'm, saying, what I'm saying is, forget that issue. What I'm saying is the issue that we have now are, are highly costly systems that do not work as advertised. <laughs> yeah. You know, Russia spends, Russia spends nowhere near what the United States does on like defense. A, like and yet it's getting something probably. Yeah. And it's getting it's getting weapons systems that work. So in other words, we're not getting a return on our investment dollar here because the system is so corrupt. There is no competition. You know, bidding bidding to cover all defense contractors uh, expenses, you know, bidding without amounts, in other words. It's just a guarantee from the government that, you know, we got your back. Uh, what that means is you're going to have an intensely corrupt system producing weapon systems that don't work. Yeah. Uh, you know, witness, three times the price quoted, you know. There are three times the price quoted. And, you know, here over here is Russia producing the world's finest tank, updating some obsolescent fighters so that they can turn off American electronic systems, you know, <laughs> and on and on we could go. 
and this this is a situation that's got to change if, if America is going to have any sort of credible military. Uh, sensitivity training in, in gender studies is not going to cut it. Uh, ships that collide in Japan and Singapore is not going to cut it. Uh, ships whose electronic systems can be taken down by obsolescent Russian Sukhoi-22 fighters bombers is not going to cut it. Especially when you're entirely fucking dependent on it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, You know, this is what scares me is about the the recent Trump uh, defense appropriations is now they're, they're relying, it seems to me, almost too exclusively on the nuclear deterrent. Well, what about the conventional one? The conventional one's more or less in tatters. So, you know, I think this is part of the pressure driving the Europeans, and in particular the Germans, to call for this European-wide defense system. And France is already making noises that, no, we don't want to go along with that. You know, can't blame them. There's little things like World War One and World War Two in their history. So that's gonna that's gonna if if the French don't join in this and and continue with their more or less independent deterrent stance, which they've had since De Gaulle, this is going to force the Germans to to rearm in in a way that you know we've not seen since 1923. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, will the Germans it, rearm though, or the, the, oh, yes, Ger- the re- Germans seem like handcuffed to Europe at this point? It's like it's almost well, like Europe's been all, handed to Germany. It's as I said. It's all dependent on France. Um, France is is bucking now, beginning to buck the idea of a common European-wide military, because what this means is obviously the Germans would be in the driver's seat regardless of, of what the French do, and that means turning over a measure of influence over the French nuclear arsenal to to the Germans. And most people don't even know that the Germans build a lot of it already. You know, so. Uh, the problem is, if France does this, it's going to the German military is already integrating Dutch and Danish and Czech units into the German command structure. But a French withdrawal from that project is only going to put more pressure on the Germans to rearm. Uh, and at this coming at a time when domestically, you know, Merkel has made such a hash of her country that uh, I don't expect that her government's going to survive for very long. And if it does, it's going to be tremendously weak and it's going to be replaced by something that will get down and, and dirty and address address the, the domestic issues. So yeah, um, I, I don't see, I don't see the idea for, you know, a peaceful, disarmament phase in the world coming because with American retreat from unipolarism, other nations are simply going to have to take up the mantle and and, uh, rearm. Japan has already seen this. It's been doing this under Abe for a number of years uh, and it's only going to increase. I don't think it's going to decrease. Does that does that have to get violent, or is, I mean, in a lot of ways, that doesn't seem so bad. No, no, disar- no disarmament doesn't mean everybody's going to go to war. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, I think if anything, if anything, let's look at let's look at Asia. A a strong Japanese military in Asia injects an element of calculation and very and and variables into the equation that has not existed in the Pacific Basin since the end of World War II, because that's been basically an American lake. Now, 
you would be injecting yet another major power into the equation, which would be a major deterrent to the calculations of China, to Russia. In other words, it's, it's a balancing factor the way I look at it. So no, I don't view Japanese rearmament as a bad thing at all. Just please this time around, don't sink our fleet with it. You know? <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think there's any danger of that either. The Japanese are not... Uh, you well, know, I mean, not... even just the general pullback of the U.S., like it, uh, to me, it almost seems, seems like a better balancing factor in some ways. Instead of well, like... I do too. It's like a bottle with a bunch of pressure on it. You can kind of fucking crack it at right. least. Right. Uh, America, you know, American unipolarism since since 9-11 has basically, as far as I'm concerned, been a geopolitical disaster because it's alienated some of our strongest allies. Uh, you know, at the rate we're going, we might end up with, with Albania and Monaco being our, our remaining allies uh, because – all of this military adventurism has made us very, very unpopular around the world. So uh, I don't see I don't see a rebalancing as being a bad thing. I do think that there is a danger of going too far with it. Certainly. Um, so it's it's gonna it, it remains to be seen whether or not the Trump administration is going to be able to strike that fine balance. Uh, I was I was in abs you know I was in geopolitical fear had had Darth Hillary got in there um, because she's just you know she's number one evil and number two she's just not very competent when it comes to geopolitics as far as I'm concerned so it remains to be seen what Trump can do or won't do if he's oh, able yeah, to strike how, yeah, how much control he really has or how much he's under the influence of that other faction of the deep state that apparently might have you know talked him into to doing this kind of thing. I do think he was persuaded to run. I don't think he would have run without, uh, without backing from somewhere. In other words, I don't think he's a naive man, uh, cleaning out that swamp in, in Washington, DC is, you know, it's beyond any one individual's ability to do anyway. And I don't think he was naive in that sense at all. So, yeah, I think he stepped into this knowing that he had support from certain very significant and powerful segments within the deep state that were very alarmed at the direction that this country had taken uh, from 9-11 onwards. Um, and a good thing, too, you know, had it continued as it was, it, it was not looking like a very pretty situation at all. No. So. Yeah, it's interesting. So do you think, do you look at this period as being somewhat hopeful? Yeah, I do. I, I Let's put it this way. I myself, and I know other people who literally were in fear of our lives had Hillary got in there. Huh. I know one individual, I won't mention who, that told me very directly that they were in fear of their life and were out of the country during the election against the possibility of a Hillary victory. Um, like literally I, being part of the body count. Yes, like literally being part of the body count. And I was in fear too because uh, I, you know, given given my own political leanings and, and some of the things I say and write about, I was in fear that, I, you know, I was going to have to at least at a minimum parse my words very carefully. Uh 
And I don't feel that pressure now under Trump. Uh, I feel the opposite. And that, I think, goes for a lot of people in this country. Uh, the mood the mood was, was uh, during the election, on both sides of the political aisle, the mood was almost hysterical. Well, I know we, uh, we're just about out of time here, so I'll give you a, uh, a, nice, a nice lob ball here to wrap up with. Um, what about this repeal of net neutrality, good or bad? Of net neutrality? Yeah. I, I've leaned both ways about it. Um, nice. I, I can tell you that under the, the previous situation where the Internet was regulated more carefully, I was able to purchase my phone and Internet connection and did not have to purchase cable TV with it to get phone and internet. Under the current situation, after, uh, I think it was Obama that deregulated this, under that situation, I am now paying for phone, internet, and cable TV, and I don't even have my cable hooked up. And I resent having to pay for uh, a bunch of television. How long have you had that for? Uh, A couple years. Yeah, so that would have been Obama instituted net neutrality in 2015 and then i think that trump just repealed it well what i'm getting at is i resent that i'm paying money to a company that i know is donating to a political party i have no use for namely hillary's and obama's uh and for programming that is culturally offensive and full of so much bilge water that I don't even have it connected. I don't want to watch the stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't had my television connected in two years. I don't watch it. I don't want to watch CBS, HBO, Showtime, NBC, Fox, any of them. I don't want to watch any of them. And I don't. And I resent having to pay the money for it. Under the previous situation, I could buy my phone and internet service and not have to buy cable TV. Um, so maybe that will be restored. But on the other point, I, I get very, very disturbed anytime anyone moves into a major media situation and and assert government control or regulation. To me, free speech is everything. Um, and my biggest problem here is that we're really we're really looking at a non-issue. Because for me, the big issue is you have now companies that are acquiring such extreme power, like Google, uh, like Facebook. These things are gigantic cartels, and they're approaching monopolies. I think those are the things that need to be looked at. I think you know we need to start uh, revitalizing a, a good, healthy look at our antitrust laws and start busting some of these big companies. Uh, we, we need to remember in this country that at one time, American Telephone and Telegraph, Ma Bell, owned everything in terms of communications. They even owned the microwave transmission channels for the major three major television networks we had back then. That was all AT&T. Kennedy came along. It was the Kennedy administration, incidentally, that started this process of busting up Ma Bell. 
And as a result of, of busting up Ma Bell, what happened? Well, you had the emergence of lots of telephone companies that lowered prices to the point now, you know, we can talk, you and I, on essentially what used to be an international line between Canada and the United States that back in those days would have cost us a fortune to do. Mm-hmm. Simply because they busted a trust, they busted a monopoly. So I think we need to start thinking in terms of some of these big companies with their big search engines and social media platforms and so on and so forth. We need to start talking in terms of busting the trust. Yeah, or even the uh, ISPs. I think that would be a better approach than getting government regulations started. Well, yeah, because that's a slippery slope. Yeah, precisely. And and it's interesting that since you mentioned that that Russia has now been buying up ISP addresses and starting to provide other ISP addresses that are not part of, of the Western Internet. So in other words, you know, they're saying let's compete a bit here. So yeah, I'm I'm agreed with you. I think I think we need to start thinking in terms of, of not just regulation or deregulation. Much more importantly, we need to start looking at these big corporations because I'll tell you what, a corporate charter does not have as part of its corporate charter, the Bill of Rights of the American Constitution. I don't know what your Canadian equivalent is. We sold it. But, <laughs> but well, that's my point. That's my point. Corporate Corporations are not interested in fundamental constitutional uh, recognitions of rights. So if they're going to get this big, my point is either they have to incorporate those things in their corporate charter or you bust them. One of the two. It's and and right now, like the the big ones, like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, are saying that they're not um, censoring. Yet they are. I mean, like Twitter oh, yeah. and YouTube. I mean, it's getting really bad. It's scary right I went now to that, William that the narrative Gate is. Gate and we were blocked. So Grimerica is shadow banned. You went to what? Yeah. There's someone. I don't know how legit it is, but there's this Twitter account that's supposed to be. If you go there and you're blocked, then you're shadow banned. And it's William Legate, and his name is William Deep State Legate. And I went there, well, and I should not know. This guy should not know we exist, and we're blocked. But if well, I went there is, on the UMG account, it's not blocked. Hmm. Well, this is my point. You know, in in the current culture of, you know, j'accuse, we're, we're literally living in, in Robespierre in France, where, where the culture now, you can accuse anybody of anything, and... and uh, they lose their job. There, there's no due process. We're seeing this in this country, particularly with you know accusations of sexual harassment and so on and so forth. Yeah. It's merely the accusation now that's sufficient to get anyone banned from anything, and that too has to be examined. So, uh, you know, well, our prime minister really- just came out and said that that he just he automatically just believe the woman it doesn't matter any circumstance he's yeah, going to believe yeah well so what know, i'm I, hoping is someone's going to come out against him and, and he's going to be like uh and don't say mankind in front of our prime minister oh. it's people kind. well uh, thank you very much i'm going to say mankind till the day i die because this is another agenda that that uh this this marxist gramscian tinkering with the language it's it's pure gnosticism this this type of thing um I know that mankind includes women. Exactly. I don't need to have. I don't need to have con- my consciousness raised. Man is man is in woman. The the word woman has man in it. 
uh, yeah, the the you know these these are just techniques to get people to go along with agendas that are group, driven behind linguistic masks, and uh, you know it's all about free speech, folks. So if, that would you uh, would agree with some of the stuff Peterson's saying? Because I mean that's basically his exact angles that that this whole this whole gender and the whole free speech thing is all the the marxist agenda whether, yes, it whether it's on purpose or whether it's by accident it's coming yeah most most of these you know fat people out there screaming in the streets don't realize that you know what they're upset about and trying to do is a far cry from what the people behind them are really all about um, yeah yeah but you know, it's it's a culture war. We're in a culture war for our Western culture, and it's being assaulted in so many insidious, ingenious ways that we have to learn just to say no. That woman should have shouted down your prime minister rather and said no, I refuse, rather than you know go along with the applause and so on. This is it's it's the passive aggression that these people also use the the turning of peer pressure against people. Uh, this is all straight out of out of you know cultural Marxist playbooks, and I have nothing to do with it. Uh, just say no, just refuse, don't do it. Use use your patriarchal parse pro toto rhetorical usage of the English language as it was always intended, and just uh, tell them to jump off at the next stop. Um, I just ordered Gulag Archipelago and to make Graham read it. I'm a little worried about him. He's, a well, little, those, he's on the fringes of SJW. Well, Gulag Archipelago, you know, Zolzhenitsyn, if, if he can't do anything else, he will wake people up as to what the realities of that whole system are, culturally, morally, uh, politically. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a bad system. Sooner or later, humanity will learn the lesson that, that it's a system that doesn't work. Do you think it will, or do you think it's yeah, just it's a never-ending cycle? No. no um, the freedom. It always, it always it, it's a lesson that's always learned when you experience it. Ask the Germans if they want to go back and experience National Socialism again. Well, no. <laughs> yeah. Not yet, but in a couple the, more generations, I could see it springing up someplace else. Well, it could spring up someplace else, but ask the Venezuelans if, how they're enjoying socialism. <laughs> you know, um, sometimes sometimes experience is bitter, but it's sometimes the best teacher. Uh, yeah, I, I hope see it what doesn't you mean. happen. One country at a time, you learn that. One country at a time. You know, um, it's never worked. It never will work. People think I'm nuts for being against, you know, national health care and all of that stuff. But the ultimate thing that all of these these wonderful programs do is they enrich the bureaucrat, they drive up the prices, and they still leave the poor people poor. <laughs> you know. So anyway, that's my that. that's my libertarian that's my libertarian rant for the evening. <laughs> nice. Hey, I'm a registered libertarian as well. <laughs> Right on. Well, thanks for coming on and spending so much time with us again. It's great. We're going to point everybody to your, your site and those books and stuff. And Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me back. Guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, same time next year. Yeah, we look forward to uh, <laughs> okay. we look forward to, uh, to get, catching more of your work uh, upcoming, even though you won't tell us what it is. So 
That's good. Well, I'm, we'll I'm figure middle, it out eventually. Yeah, I'm <laughs> in the middle of a big project, and and I don't, you know, I've wanted to do two books this year, but this project I'm in the middle of is so big. Good. I had I had to stop this project last year to finish the Hess book because once I got into the Hess book, I realized, oh, this book has to precede the one that I was doing. So I don't know if I'm going to get this done this year or not. I'm going to try, but <laughs> right, we well, didn't even touch on the Hess book, but that's worth adding to the reading list yeah, as well. Yeah, we'll put it on there. <laughs> so yeah, we'll uh, we'll keep an eye open for that big project when it comes out for sure. All right, guys, thanks right. for having me back. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. And another mind-blowing couple hours with Mr. Joseph P. Farrell. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Think, yeah, that's great. Isn't it amazing how you, he's one of those people that you can just fucking ping-pong from one thing to another to another, and he's, he can just articulate, oh, my book. He's yeah. written about it all, you Yeah, know? so smart, too. Yeah, 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 it's something else. It's always yeah. a pleasure. Yeah, always. always. a pleasure. And he puts up with our shit here, which is awesome, and it seems yeah. like he has a pretty good time. That's right. So I want to talk about this map though the heat map yeah i'm gonna send him the link because he didn't seem like he knew about it so yeah. i'll send him the link after this but i mean we're looking at it right now and what's really interesting to me is there's i the, wonder the if top. that dude just wandered out into the cold and died yeah <laughs> 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 or his fitbit ran out of batteries or whatever for sure something happened so we're looking at this thing from from you know at the northern part is it northern even I don't know the top of Antarctica that'd be the southern and so I mean this this path here and this is a Fitbit trail I mean this could just be one dude I mean who knows I don't think it's a a trail with a whole bunch of them but look at that's obviously on the surface because it's going around these um, holes in the ice and the, and like cliffs and stuff. Those so are like, hikers. That could like, be a hiking trail. That's the, yeah, definitely a hiking trail. I mean, look at how it stops there and they probably camp or stay overnight or whatever. I mean, who knows how, how big that is actually. And then check out, check out this, how you go Can't down. Can't you see to, the scale on your computer? No. Well, I'm, I don't know. So look at this one here. What? Look at this know. hole here. You mean you don't know? Well, I'm on this, in this map on this doesn't app. It, it doesn't, no, it doesn't, it doesn't have, have a legend no, with a scale. Not. Otherwise, it'd Are be... you sure it looks like it's right beside that thing your mouse is on? There's nothing on here. No. Anyways, look at this one here, and we'll, I'm put. This is in the show notes as well. Check that out. See, the problem is, as soon as you zoom in, it gets a bit. Fuzzy, that looks like but... a little landing strip or something. Yeah, right? is it like a... So, anyways, and then you then zoom out a little bit. And this trail, it's obviously surface trail because it's going past all the mountains and stuff like that. That's the trek we're going to send you on. Sure. And then just it stops in the middle of nowhere, which is interesting. I don't know what happened to that dude. But then you go, who knows how far to the right. And there's a... Who knows how far? I don't know. <laughs> but look, it's all level. It's all... It's very interesting how level it is. And there's a big sea that's perfect, a perfect sea. Like, which, which can't, I don't think that can be on the surface unless there's a track on the surface of the ice, but it's absolutely perfect. How does it zoom out? And then past that, there's another like straight track, but that to me, that could be, this guy could be going to the underground base and then that, that could be. That's the shape of the it's, main it's hallway. All, yeah. The big, there's a massive main hallway and then maybe that C is a spot where your Fitbit can be seen, but maybe the rest of it is shielded or something and you can't That's see the it. The top of the spiral staircase going down. Yeah. And by the time you spiral down yeah, to that yeah, point, you're too gone. far down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, super interesting. I mean, what could that C be? I don't know. What could it be? 
So they're zooming out. Like, so how big do you think that is if you see that in context? Of the, it looks massive. fucking, look at how big it is, eh? But look at how big the sea is. It's the same, you know, as a big, as a big city almost, I think. Like you drive down that motherfucker. Yeah. Drive a giant fucking, you fly a plane or some shit. But that could just be one guy in Antarctica. Who knows? Just a circle around a single cell tower. So did that scratch your Antarctica itch enough there, that Darren? Or that what? spiraled around before he did that, died. Did that scratch your Antarctica itch at all? Froze to death. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. It was good. I think we should have someone on and go fucking right off the rails now. Inner Earth. Because he was very, it's a, that's a very yeah. level and yeah. modest approach. Then yeah. next time we'll have someone on like, that just fucking like. Bon yeah, yeah, fucking yeah, Inner Earth. And ten foot aliens down there. They're fucking fighting Nazis. We're backing the Nazis up. Yeah. Bingo, bango. Carrie's down there to get his dose of. Um, that's where he gets superhuman. The, that's where he gets the ketchup. His superhuman uh, stem cells, and like, he's gonna live forever. Heinz ketchup is actually alien blood. He's milking secret One, alien ketchup cows in Antarctica. So this reminds me of that guy. Remember that author this I tried to find? Project Saucer. Project Saucer. Remember the yeah. guy that wouldn't come on the show? <laughs> he wrote about like as if it's the guy from Project Saucer that won't come on the show. What he won't? We, we can get the guy. He from, wrote a bunch of other we books can get as the well. Guy from NASA to come on. We can go the other guys, like the fucking saucer guys. Like no, he you he's guys done are, with that. But you guys are fucking series. crazy. No, yeah, he won't come on. But it was all about this, like this uh, transhumanist developing saucers in a base in Antarctica. Fascinating, flying them all around. It was, it was an awesome book. Come on, he won't come on. Ask him again, real nice. No, he won't. He's done with it. I can tell. He's written a whole bunch of other books. He's moved on from the UFO thing from the mid nineties. There you have it. Yeah, he's moved on. He's had it. We have Graham's move. Maybe on he was a shill. Maybe it was part of the disinformation program. His check stuff. And he's coming. just like, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm done with that. <laughs> they stopped paying me. Then tell us you were a shill. Whistleblow. No, nah, he signed a non-disclosure. Yeah. NDAs will get you. Two to the head. Graham, however, still has his mid-90s UFO paraphernalia, paraphernalia on the wall behind him. Yeah. He's still going strong That's right. with his paranoia. All right, guys, big thanks to Joseph P. Farrell for coming on the show once again. Uh, big thanks to you guys for listening to this show. I think it'll be like number 270 or some shit. Um, head on over to grahamerica.ca slash support, guys. Uh, check out all the fine ways and different options if you can sign up for a uh, for a subscription there, that really is the most helpful. It does help us pay the bills and keep the budget going. Um, of course, you can do a one-time donation there as well. You can click on the Patreon link if you don't want to go through PayPal. A bunch of different cryptocurrencies there, uh, just as well for the crypto freaks. We uh, should go. We should go on to Steam it. People have suggested that. Yeah, well, yeah. put it on. Someone put it on. Can you put it on? I don't want to. Maybe do I'll, I don't know. I'll look into it. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. This is why we're not on Steam it, but we're probably still playing for a fucking SoundCloud account we never use. <laughs> we're paying sixteen bucks a month for SoundCloud. We're paying. I was a supposed to cancel that a while a ago, but I always thought maybe it'll just take off. We probably got like two thousand listens on SoundCloud in four years. Yeah, but it's still some. A couple people found us on SoundCloud, so, so that was for yeah. that. Or dying breed. That was an expensive get, but oh well. <laughs> We're paying like fucking thirty bucks a head. Well, we I used to get all the music off SoundCloud too, and then it'd be cheaper to drive over to their house and 
give them an invitation. Yeah. Anyway, check it out, guys. It really does help. Helps us keep the uh, dream alive, keep the show going forward. Of course, uh, if you can't afford to do so monetarily, there's a ton of different ways in the show notes. Check out the show notes right now. There's a whole doobie-doobie-doo list, 90% of which doesn't cost you anything and helps out immensely. Uh, Don't forget, if you do uh, sign up for a subscription or do a one-time donation, you get access to the Black Budget feed, which is more Grammerica. Uh, So yeah, check it out, guys. I think that's about it. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
Crimeerica.ca slash support. Crimeerica.ca slash support. Oh, fee, fi, fiddly, I, oh, and Tom and Felix sent you there.